For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts. A couple of weather-related stories making the papers this morning. Rather contradictory. Well, not contradictory, really, but it's, it's interesting because they say that we had above-average uh, temperatures and sunshine uh, for the month of September. Would you believe that? Um, I thought it was a complete not or non-event by and large, but they're saying um, that we had above average temperatures and sunshine. How endeavour, we also had more rainfall uh, than usual for the month of September. And don't forget, we also had Storm Agnes with a lot of rain and some heavy, heavy, heavy winds as well and gale force winds. So we got, got everything in September, if you like. We got temperatures, we got sunshine and we got rain and we got ourselves a big storm but here comes the sun it's all right as in the Beatles lyrics from the song of the same name Uh, this morning the sun says 22 degrees in parts of Ireland across the weekend they are encouraging people to get the shorts and the t-shirts out and perhaps if you have already packed away and covered up or dismantled the barbecue uh uh-uh bad idea you could well be using it this weekend so all of that is lovely stuff I have to say now with regards to the MV Matthew that's um, moored down in a berth uh, in the uh, greater port area down around Ringeskiddy and uh, Marina Point. Marina Point. Actually, mooring fees will have to be paid on that big um, cargo ship. So it's going to cost this, costing the state money just having it in the first place. So 157 million euro worth of cocaine, 2.2 tonnes of the stuff and four men uh, charged in connection with it. Uh, Barry Roach has it in the Irish Times this morning. Ralph Regal carries it and I have his story here in the Independent. <coughs> so uh, four men have been charged in connection with the seizure of it. Now, one of them is a Dutch national and others are, uh, two of them are Ukrainian nationals and the fourth is an Iranian national. So they're before the courts, actually a mallow sitting of the district court amid very tight security yesterday. There's at least 20 and perhaps more uh, other crew members who are still on board the MV Matthew. I think they uh, are um, Filipino nationals. Crew, and what's going to happen with them? I, I have no idea at this stage. So it dominates many of the papers and the courts today. A lot of court stories and kind of judicial stories again. Like Liam Healan is a very interesting one in the Echo and probably in the Examiner as well of a man with two passports. So there's a big international investigation going on into to a 70-year-old man with an American accent who was arrested in Cork. They've now established he had two passports in the names of two babies who died within three months of birth in 1952 and 1953. It's one of those bizarre stories. They've made all sorts of numerous investigations and queries as to this person's actual identity. There was a detective yesterday talking in the Cork District Court and the passports of the names of Philip Morris and Geoffrey Warbrook the two names on the passports that were seized by, allegedly seized by the, uh, from the accused. But they are happy to say uh, that we're satisfied that he is neither of those people. So it's one of those bizarre stories. Meanwhile, of course, we had barristers all out of, over the country um, protesting yesterday. Many of them, of course, do public work for the state and they're paid appallingly appallingly bad, much worse I mean the pay was better 20 years ago than it is now, I mean they're saying, they're saying that in real terms there's been massive cuts certainly with the public works now there are an awful lot of barristers some of them do really really well particularly those that are at it for many many years but others coming into it uh, make very little money and uh, they say that you see an awful lot of barristers who go in and join the bar and leave after six years because they can't afford to stay. So that's an interesting one, and I hope perhaps uh, over the next couple of days to have an opportunity to talk to them, particularly to Tom Creed, senior counsel, who's become somewhat of a spokesperson for barristers in Cork. And he, he rightly said yesterday, because the lads were chatting with him, but he's not 
He's not making the play for himself, really. It's for those that are coming in uh, to the law. Um, also, you know, other kind of law-related and judicial-related and security-related stories include uh, the Drew flu. Uh, Doll 999 is the front page of the Mirror this morning as to what they're going to do for very important days, including... Uh, budget day when there could be some kind of protest expected next Tuesday and they're worried according to the mail this morning they're worried that there could be some sort of a repeat of ugly protests that were seen last month so they are now taking precautions by putting six foot high barriers like a ring of steel around um, Leinster House I mean is that where we've actually come to that sounds to me as if we live in a very tense uh, country, you know, uh, where you know anything is liable to happen. That we're moving closer and closer to a tinderbox. Um, so that's a front pager making the mail today. They also carry the story in many of the red tops. And then one other story that has a, a, a legal connection to it, and that of course is the story of uh, Enoch Burke, uh, who's back in Mountjoy Prison again. Uh, he refused yesterday in court to to uh, undertake to stay away from Wilson's Hospital School in County Westmeath. So he's back in jail again. Um, the, the star this morning uh, headline says Trans Row Teachers Mountjoy Jail Stay uh, continues. And then another one that possibly could become a, a court issue. I, I don't know. I Just following the story in the papers this morning, it's an undertaker and it's an allegation against an undertaker. He's at the centre of a major Garda probe, according to the Irish Independent this morning, into allegations that he stole cash from dead people while removing them from their homes. Now, the Garda give um, some different alleged examples of that theft. Um, they eventually swooped on the Dublin funeral home worker in recent days. They actually put a sting in operation um, and the sting involved Gardy placing a small sum of marked notes, as in money, in the room where the body was lying um, and the undertaker was in there. And when they returned after the body had been removed, <coughs> they discovered the money was missing. There was a similar sting done some time ago in a Cork hospital with regards to a member of cleaning staff. I don't know if that ever was reported and became a legal action, um, but it was there were accusations at the time that somebody was stealing money from patients. And I dealt with that on the air. Um, actually got a, a very lengthy email from one of the people who was allegedly robbed, and I believe the individual. But anyway, back to, back to this story. So the Independent this morning is saying the undertaker at the centre of the inquiry would have been responsible for preparing bodies uh, being before being, uh, you know, they, and then would escort the, the bodies from their homes to the mortuary. But there was suspicion raised first last month after Uniform Gardaí at the scene of a sudden death in the capital. The guards believed that a sum of cash was taken from a room. Um, the undertaker had been alone in the room uh, and, and, you know, another similar incident then weeks later involving the same undertaker. So that's going to be something that we'll keep an eye on. Um, there are other money-related stories, uh, particularly. Now, while we don't have all of the full figures and facts from all of the derelict sites around the entire county. Uh, the Echo this morning says that only just over €3,000, 3,300 euro was actually collected in derelict site levies across Cork County Council, which is kind of bizarre when you think that there are nearly 12,000 vacant properties in County Cork on census night last year. So out of 12,000 vacant properties, uh, €3,300 in derelict light, uh, site levies. Now, there were no fees or figures um, released for uh, lots of areas of, of, of East Cork and for Moy and West Cork. Um, but it's a front page and inside page story making this morning's exact echo. Now, now um, 
I don't know how to put this to you, but imagine that all of us, whether it's on our settee or in our cushions or on our mattresses or on our sheets in the bedroom, we all have bed bugs now um, and fluid as well, huge amounts of fluid. Now, I mention all of that. I can maybe drill into exactly what you can find in your own average mattress a little later on. But Irish rugby fans are being warned um, if they're going to Paris, be wary of a bed bug invasion and not just in bed bugs. So the Independent this morning says Paris is battling a bed bug infestation within the city's hotels, theatres and public transport system, all invaded by the blood-sucking critters as thousands of Irish rugby fans descend on the French capital. I mean, if you're going there, what are you supposed to do at this stage? You can't bring a bed bug monitor. Um, I suppose you could stay off public transport and not take the metro. But bizarrely, videos posted on social media are showing insects crawling over seats on the Paris metro. So I would certainly advise to stay off that anyway because you don't want to be bringing back uninvited guests home with you or indeed on your body. So it's awful, isn't it? It really is kind of icky stuff. Uh, They're also talking about other videos posting warnings about the critters swarming their Airbnb rentals. So they have a bed bug infestation in Paris. I just mention it for those of you that are excited to be heading off uh, to the rugby for Saturday's game. There's other kind of sporty stories making the papers today, including David Beckham. Now, David Beckham is in all of the papers and right across the weekend there's low, I mean, he must have done an awful lot of interviews. He really and truly must. And much of it behind Beckham, the documentary on Netflix. Uh, So that's been dropped on Netflix now, should you wish to go along and watch it. But there are many different facets to the stories that Beckham's giving in interviews and also within the documentary itself. I see the English Times this morning gives it three stars out of five, which is kind of unfortunate. I think you'd really need a four star for a story like Beckham, wouldn't you? But he talks about uh, trouble within his marriage, the different times that it nearly came a cropper and came off the rails. He talks about his fights and spats with Alex Ferguson, uh, telling him to F off. Was it Beckham? Was it Beckham that Ferguson threw the uh, hairdryer at that became the hairdryer moment? Forgive me, just jump in and tell me, was that Cantona or who oh was God. it? Um, I'm trying to remember now which, I think was, it which. Was, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of like food related incidents. I remember Arsenal playing United once and there was teacups thrown and pizza, slices of pizza being thrown and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. The hairdryer treatment I think was Ferguson at other players. Was it? it? Okay, okay. Um, anyway. But I know that, uh, the, the, that that Beckham was like public enemy number one after. I think it was Diego okay. Ceremony. So, the, so okay. also the documentary I made the interviews talk about that story regarding Ferguson, but also the red card in 1998 when he ended up as being public enemy number one. They had effigies of him hanging and there was posters where you could throw darts at it. He says in many of the interviews that that was the one time that people were telling him and he was listening to the advice to get out of England. Yeah. It, w- it wouldn't be like football fans to overreact to, to, to something I know, like that. I know, I know. But for this is coming as well. Did put them out of the know, World Cup? Well, uh, they say it did. Like, uh, they lost to Argentina ultimately in the quarterfinals and obviously the English and the Argentinians and there was the whole thing about the Falcons 
Falklands. There's that whole big rivalry that's always on. Tell so the game was massive. It. And I know Michael Owen had scored in that game a kind of a famous goal. So then when Beckham, Beckham lost his temper and kicked out. But the same thing, I don't know if you remember, the same thing happened when Wayne Rooney got sent off. I think they played Portugal in Euro 2006. And Beck, I, I could be wrong now, and I'm sure people will correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, but Wayne Rooney got sent off in a game against Portugal. And then he was public enemy number one for being sent off in that afterwards. It's, okay, there's, there's a bit of scapegoatism kind of going I, on. I know that it's over the top. I really do. Particularly if your own personal safety is at risk. But in fairness, um, you know, they're footballers. They're superstars. They're paid vast amount of money. You know, yeah, you got to be able to take some flack. I know, but like, I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, and I suppose the thing is like, I, I don't really, so that argument about how much footballers get paid. Like, if, if somebody paid you well, I don't know, two million for coming in the morning. Would you be two million better than you were coming in yesterday? Like, no, I, I think you it's, just, I agree. You I just get paid. It's, well, it's it's, it's up to the market to decide how much they want to pay players. It's not up to the players to decide. But they're they only paid. justifiable amounts of money. Oh, I completely agree in with fairness. you. But that's not the players that are that are that are. I mean, it's the players' agents are asking for it. But the, if the clubs decided round the table, we're not paying this anymore. We're paying you way too much. Then you could go back to the days of football has been paid twenty and thirty grand. Will you watch the documentary? Incidentally, uh, it's a two. Yeah, I probably will. I, I, I'm what I'm really into at the moment is there's a Tour de France documentary at the moment, Unchained on Netflix. Big into that. That that's superb. I like the sports documentary stuff. They're interesting, but I'm not really into the whole Beckham thing. Like, Same guy, of, I think. I was an Arsenal Beck- fan. He kind of the whole thing passed me. But you might be too young. To be honest with you, you might just be too young. For me, no, for I was, I was, I was, I was, I was very football obsessed when the whole Beckham thing was okay. happening. Okay. I remember it all, but I just, and I remember the free kick against Greece and the whole thing, and I just, I just, it just Beckham never did it for me but as an Arsenal fan. If they have a documentary about Dennis Burkamp, I definitely watch it. Well, the, 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 the Match of the Day guys actually um, did something recently that were picking their best player. I don't know what the others picked, but I do know that um, one of the three of them can't remember which one. Pro- oh, Lineker, yeah, picked. Beckham yeah it's a, uh, it's a popular choice isn't it okay. I mean I don't know um, the Ferguson incident going back to because now I, I just had a quick Google of it and now the kind of starting to come back but actually um, he kicked he kicked, Ferguson kicked a boot across the dressing ah, room yeah, right. which yeah. caught yeah. Beckham across yeah, the eye good. and then he was wearing stitches that's, that's what went down there but I do remember a famous um, post-Arsenal um, United there was a clash between the two dressing rooms and there was literally a food fight between the two biggest teams in the Premier League across the dressing rooms Apparently, Pizzagate is what they call this. Childish stuff, it really is. Anyway, appreciate that. Overall, anyway, this morning in the English Times, the review uh, says, overall, it will be good for the Beckham's image, this documentary on Netflix, probably. They come across as likeable and down-to-earth, possibly because they are likeable and down-to-earth. Beckham shares that he is so particular about neatness that he cleans everything in the kitchen before going to bed, even wiping the inside of the candle holders because he doesn't like smoke marks. If the vast Beckham millions ever run dry, he'd make an amazing home help. So it gets three stars out of five. I am delighted, although my prowess as a sports person is zero, but I'm delighted that I have one thing at least in common with Beckham, as in before he goes to bed, he makes sure that everything is clean and tidy. Um, So do I. And I'm quite sure that there are other people out there who have their own routines. I'm the last to bed at night. Won't dwell much on this because more important things going on in the world. But I'll do what Beckham does also and make sure that everything is nice and clean and tidy and what have you. Not not obsessive now. And maybe Beckham is at the obsessive end of the scale. 
just so that it's nice to come down in the morning. So that's the story there. Meanwhile, of course, uh, more to do with the real world, is uh, really lovely coverage of Bob Geldof in in Belfast yesterday for the One World Summit. I mention it because the room was filled with delegates and Beckham is a great guest. I saw him actually do a speech uh, on Leaside years and years ago um, down on the South Mall at one of the events that the examiner put on and they put a different one on every year. John Cleese was another year, John Major another year. Uh, But Beckham, but sorry, but um, Geldof was just unbelievable when he speaks but he, he went through about Irish hunger and the famine and was comparing it to famines in Africa and saw no difference he was talking about the troubles he was talking about the Irish language obviously he was talking about his time with the Boomtown Rats he was talking about people should need to sit down and respect each other and try and work out exactly how what everybody wants so we can f- solve the problems that we have before we become overwhelmed by technological advancements um, and natural events and climate change but he had a particular lash out at, um, you know, the super giant companies who claim to be globally aware of climate change. He says, when I listen to some of these giant companies talking BS um, on stage, and he was turning to some of the other speakers there, it makes me puke. He says, I can't stand the bullishness of Pepsi, who are not a food company. They make a nice drink and I love it. But please spare me the 60 million plastic bottles every year. And spare me the nonsense about being a food company. Doritos aren't food. They're just a way to channel ultra-processed food. So I said there was a bit of mortification on the stage with other guests when he went off on one like that. And we've often talked about the elderly and those that are old and lonely and alone. And Paddy O'Brien talks about it an awful lot. It's a story in the mail this morning. Part of it is lovely because it's saying that 150,000 older people in this country are now stepping up to help with childcare and they help their sons and their daughters with childcare, but an awful lot of them are suffering with loneliness. And they say that particularly at Christmas time, uh, the charity says that they made over 5,000 calls last Christmas just checking in on elderly people or people who are alone experiencing loneliness, uh, unprecedented demands and calls from the elderly with regards to how they're going to pay their energy bills. All sad stuff, isn't it? Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. I got to call texts and emails from yesterday as well. I did hear in the news there at 9 o'clock that they're moving along with regards to regulations around e-scooters and you're seeing more and more of them on their roads. They're suggesting now that it would mean that the e-scooter would have to have a speed limit of 20 kilometres an hour. It would be required to have lights and you'd have to be at least age 16 to be on board one of them. I don't see anything in the legislation about making it law uh, that the e-scooter must stay in the cycle lane to be safe for everybody because all too often you see too many of them in traffic between cars and scooting in and out between lanes and that means uh, an awful lot of pressure for people in cars uh, or trucks or lorries trying to keep an eye out for the e-scooter. There is one other driving related story today and it's the world's first breathalyzer toothbrush. It'll actually tell you if you're over the limit to drive the morning after and it'll hit the shelves next year. It'll be the same price as a regular or maybe a mid-priced electric toothbrush but they're saying that one in four adults admits to driving the morning after a night of drink having no idea as to whether they would pass or fail a breathalyzer. So apparently, and this is kind of interesting because an awful lot of people's electric toothbrushes, the bottom of them, the base, is absolutely manky. But that's what you blow into, the base of it. So you blow into the base and if it flashes red, you're over the limit in the morning. If it flashes green, you're not. I 
suppose it's a handy bit of technology. I actually thought that it would tell you whether or not you were over the limit as you brushed your tooth, your tooth, your teeth with the brush. But maybe that'll be the next development in it. So text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. Lots and lots of stories yesterday. Quite alarming and many of them and all of them very, very sad with regards to uh, miscarriage. And unfortunately, I suppose to some extent, perhaps some hospital settings and the CUMH came in for criticism yesterday that maybe there should be a little bit more training with regards to dealing with women who are going through a miscarriage. Uh, And, you know, the stories yesterday were quite alarming regarding much of the treatment. I think perhaps, and and I was just thinking about this last night, that maybe um, it's, it's thought to be just a medical procedure or an unfortunate medical event within maybe some people within hospital settings or that it, it just it becomes just um, just a, a waste product in the eyes of maybe medicine sometimes when it's not like that at all when it comes to the parents or particularly the women or indeed their partners who uh, have gone through a miscarriage and, you know, would see it as their small little baby who they were hoping to welcome into the world and love and care and cherish. Uh, but yesterday, uh, so many texts on it. I hope to get through them uh, as best I can across the morning. But And there are many emails on it as well. Uh, but I was also curious as to, because I was talking yesterday primarily with an awful lot of women, um, and there are partners involved in this. Of course there are. And it's important to hear their voices as well. So, Liam, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Good, Let thank you. Thanks for thanks for holding it, and thank you for your for your text. Now, while you do have three children, um, healthy and happy, uh, you did lose your first child. That's correct. Yes, we lost our first child, but um, I don't think that was of, would have been of any fault from from the hospital. I think that just uh, that just happened. You know, mm. while it was hard, you know, maybe, maybe they could have spotted it earlier or whatever. But no, I think we've accepted now that that was just one of those things that happened. And it does, sadly. And it, it, does. Does. Yeah. it does. It does. And we all know them, or it's happened in our families, our extended families. We know right. it. Yeah. So of which right. did you wish to speak about then? The birth of your children? Well, well, I think after we lost the first child, we went, you know, we, we went again from, for another child. And from the start of the pregnancy of the first to the very end of the pregnancy of the third, it was just a nightmare. Now, I know there will be good stories coming out of CUMH, etc., but we just had a terrible, terrible experience. On all three that. occasions? Sorry? On all three occasions? On all three occasions, there was something with all three. Okay, okay. You know, between the first, uh, my wife had serious issues with blood pressure, serious issues with blood pressure in the first one. In fact, we were up in the hospital so often that um, they got to know me by name. I'd walk in the door and they'd say, hi, how are you? Um, uh, no, they did absolutely nothing. Even one of the, the midwives at one stage, she was checking her record and she said, my God, they haven't even given you as much as a discipline in any of the cases. So we got actually fed up because one, the last occasion she was kept overnight for observation and according to her, no, she wasn't checked at all that night. Nobody checked her out. But the next morning when I went to collect her, I brought my own blood pressure machine with me. And when she was being released, a junior doctor checked her out and said, you're fine, go home. And I said, one minute, please. And I checked it with my own one. And it read very, very high. And I showed him this. And he said, oh, no, we use our own machines. And I said, well, one minute, please. So I checked it on myself. And mine came up perfect. And I put it back on my wife, and again it read high. Yeah, that must have gone so down asked, like a lead balloon, bringing in your own medical equipment, incidentally. 
Well, I asked to speak to a senior doctor. I said, I'm not happy with this. Um, you know, no disrespect to yourself. You seem to bring in machine after machine after machine until you get a right reading and then it's a matter go home. So we were waiting 45 minutes for uh, a senior doctor until we were told by the senior midwife to go home. There's nothing wrong with us. So we decided to go home. We got maybe 40 kilometers down the road. She was feeling ill. So we pulled into a chemist in a local town and they measured her blood pressure. And they said, my dear girl, you should be in hospital. You're a walking stroke. Insane. Insane. No, so we took her home. There was no point. We got really seriously, seriously fed up at the hospital at this stage. So I rang the hospital and I said, you just discharged us, etc. And I said, I just had her blood pressure professionally checked and they have told us they should be ringing an ambulance at this stage to bring her back up. So all they said was bring her up and I said, no. We have in the family nurses, etc. So I just mentioned that one of three things are happening here. I said, your machines are either not working properly, your staff are not able to use them, or you're just telling us a barefaced lie just to get out of there. Um, yeah, I, d- we, I, d- I wouldn't we, think the third, to be quite honest with you. you know, I don't think anybody is working within our hospital settings who just want to get rid of patients who are literally maybe borderline stroke patients. Yes. Well, I, I would, I would hate, I would hate well. to think that, you know. I really I would. would. I would think that myself. Um, but, but So we went home and we... Um, we, 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 we dealt with it ourselves. I mean, I, in the hospital, all they were doing was just, you lie down, put your legs up. And and, oh, okay, okay. And, and listen, if, if you wish to be critical, of course, because you went through the experiences and your wife did, uh, that's fine by me. You, but with, the, with regards to the, the miscarriage, um, um, what, 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 was, there, was there a comment made as to the, 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 the small little baby or, or for some the fetus that you would take it home? Or was that said to you? Yeah, we were told, we were told, you know, the day that we were told that um, she, she went up, she had to have it removed. I can't remember the procedure, what it's called. She went up to have it removed and they told us, look, we can either hold on to it and bury it in a, there's a communal grave there or somewhere in Cork City, or we can take it home. So we decided, look, we'll take it home, we'll buy our own grave and close to home, the child will be close to us. Um the day we went up to hospital to find out we were actually pregnant with our first child, we were, we were absolutely delighted. My wife was over the moon. We were, we were delighted. But as walking up the corridor, I was pulled aside. Now, it wasn't the midwife. It wasn't the nurse. I, I don't know what office she came from. But she said, we have the remains here of a child if you want to bring it home. And I just said, my dear girl, she's just been told she's pregnant again. She's happy. Don't, don't be landing. I'll come up later and I'll collect it. I thought it was very unprofessional. Now, maybe she obviously didn't know that we were told we were pregnant again, but I think there should be other ways of means of letting you know. And how how was the the, the baby's remains handed over? Like was it a box? It was a, in a box in a little brown kind of a can or not a canvas kind of a, a bag, a little brown bag. A pouch is it? Um, no, it was a kind of a, a little, little handbag. It was a, a small kind of a handbag, okay. brown, okay. Uh, kind of cottony thing. So we brought it home, but. You know, a week later, I went up and I collected it and uh, brought her home, and it was written on it, um, female, so which broke my wife's heart again. So we bur- we buried it ourselves. We buried it ourselves in in, in, in our local graveyard. Right. Okay. And um, was there was there an issue then with uh, uh, w- w- during childbirth the dislocation of one of the baby's shoulders? Yes. Sean. Sean. He was he was born. Um. We, now we were. This is our first child, so we didn't know what was going on here. So as they were putting the child out of my wife 
they actually dis- they pulled the bone in his shoulder. Because um, I asked, you know, I point to the other midwife, I said, how long is it going to take to get the doctor's uh, feet off my, my wife's butt? The way they were pulling the child out. So he has a shoulder displacency, and we went private to try and get it handled. And we're having no joy with that either, because he actually works for the CUH as well. Okay, okay. So, so the the we, child was born with a dislocated shoulder because of the force of the pulling. Well, it wasn't a dislocated shoulder, but the shoulder bone is, is sticking out. It's, as the guy said, it's it's the the private. He said it is um, damaged tendons, but they will grow back. And that was four years ago. Okay, I'll get that. Back. Okay. That was four years. I won't. Ago. I won't keep you much longer because I know you've got child duties there. Uh, you did try. You did go to a solicitor. Was it about that case? Yes. Well, we went, we went first to a patient advocacy because all we wanted was an apology because everybody that we went to said, you've been gutted like a fish here. That's completely wrong. We've been completely wrong how we were treated here. We're all three children. Um, we said, okay, look, we just want an apology. Acceptance that, okay, you made a mistake, which is fine. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, but tell us you're sorry for doing it. And we didn't even get a reply back. So we said, you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll make you say sorry. So we went to a solicitor and proceedings were going ahead until they said, okay, at this stage, you know, you're going to have to pay for a specialist to come over from Birmingham and he's going to cost 8,000 euros. You'd have so to pay that. that. Yes. Yeah. So we, we actually don't have that kind of money to kind of maybe, maybe not, you know. Right. Okay. So that so was the, that was the that. end of that. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. we had to abandon that one then. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, with the second birth then, with our second child then, she again, she was torn apart and a joint birth. And the third child, I said about half an hour before she went down to the delivery room, my wife started complaining she had pains in the room. And when we went down, during the birth, one of the trainees was asked, what can you see? And Can you see the head? And she said, no, I can see a limb. So it was fantastic. Okay, I actually don't want any names with regards to any of the staff that are there. Um, You you, you would accept, though, uh, with all due respect, that some births can be very, very painful, traumatic and difficult. Definitely. However, there's these little things that should have been caught before. The child was breached. And they they were checking her beforehand. Why didn't they catch that? that's That's a serious birth to go through, you know. The child turned the wrong way. There's all small things like that, you know, between the first boy with his shoulder being pulled, the blood pressure with Mary, the last child being breached, the second child. We just had a, a terrible, terrible time. Yeah. On yeah. top of losing the first one, you know. I know, I know. It was hard going. So look at like this, we won't be going again. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Thanks for sharing the experiences, of course, uh, no difficult and disappointing as yeah. they were. Thank you, Liam. Take care. Text 0868104106. We'll stay with our phone calls. Laura, good morning. Good morning, Neil. And we're going back um, to St. Finbar's when uh, there's no maternity there now, so there's not any more. No, it's gone now. It's all amalgamated into CUMH. Okay. I suppose um, for me, it was 19 years ago, and that's a long time. It's it's nothing like the ladies that were on yesterday, you know, but. Um, I suppose for me, I'm kind of saddened and somewhat not surprised that things haven't changed in that time because I suppose uh, my miscarriage was my my third uh, pregnancy um, and like that, it was very similar in circumstances to one of the ladies yesterday where I went up, I was scanned and told I had to go home and let it happen naturally. Um, was there no heartbeat, is it? The day. 
there was no heartbeat. Yeah, I was only about nine weeks gestation, so it was um, very early. But I think one of the ladies said yesterday, and I really um, resonated with it, from the moment you, you get that positive pregnancy test, you know, you are planning. And you're you're doing your shopping and you're looking at the baby food again and you're looking at the little baby grows and, you know, you have it in your mind that, um, you know, you have another member of your family. You are now, yeah, listen, you put that yeah. so beautifully. To you, yeah. you are awaiting the arrival of a baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you have a really. baby. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not about how early it is or the size of it or anything. And I suppose I just had some very light spotting and I rang the maternity unit in Finbars at the time and they told me come up and I did and they did the scan and there was no heartbeat. And to be honest, I actually was quite shocked because it was so very little that I I didn't expect I was miscarrying. I, I thought I was just going there precautionary, I suppose, Um so I was quite shocked to hear that um, there was no heartbeat and that I was um, starting to miscarry. And they sent me home that evening and said, look, it could happen over the next couple of days and that the bleeding would get heavier. And we brought my mum down home with us because at the time I had a seven-year-old and a six-year-old um, and we were in the middle of building a house. So, um, you know, it was a stressful time and mum came down to kind of help look after the kids. And I remember sitting down watching television that night and, and that the bleeding had started getting worse. Um, and we threw on some comedy show or something just to try and, you know, kind of keep your your head distracted. And at one stage I laughed at something funny and I could feel the pressure and passing something and I went to the bathroom. I'm sorry, now I know this is <laughs> personal, but I had passed... Um, what looked like a large piece of tissue it was hard to tell but for me it very much did look like it was the sack and I just started screaming you know it's very much like Susan's story yesterday Ashley's story yesterday as well and that's why I really resonated with with it when she said that she was at home with small children and my kids had gone to bed but they weren't gone to bed long Um, but I was just screaming and my husband came in and I was saying what do I do with this what do I do with this you know and he rang the hospital and they said to bring it up. But I was just in, I can't even describe it. It was psychotic. I was screaming so much. And it is a horrendous thing to go through. And even if someone tells you you're going to miscarry, you don't know what to expect. Um, and I, I, I was looking yesterday at the, the HICWA standards, you know, just on foot of all the calls that were in. Because really, I'm, I'm very upset to think that this kind of thing is still going on to this day. And in the standards, it says that they are provide the care that people need in the appropriate environment. But they're obviously not doing that if they're sending people home. Well, Ashley you know? was um, was given her little baby. Um, and I know yeah. I've been getting texts also talking about at what stage is a baby a baby and a fetus and, oh, and viable looks- birth and independent living. And I understand all of that. Yeah. But it was still, yeah. it was still a Ziploc bag. Um, yeah. You know, uh, do, do, you, do you is it is it is it a case that maybe all miscarriages should be in a hospital setting? Well, I don't know. I suppose clinically they will say no, but maybe they should be able to provide a choice for people, or at least allow you know have a kind of an empathetic conversation with people where they can say, look, this is what's going to happen. It could be really difficult for you. Is this something that you would prefer to do in your home? You know, I, I just think it should be 
it should be more of a, a consultation and more supportive. It certainly isn't. It's very clinical. When I had to go back up for my DMC, I remember sitting in the in the surgery room while they were getting the instruments ready and I'm sitting in a gown in a freezing cold room and, and being quite honest, I felt like I was about to have an abortion. Now, I obviously wasn't because my baby was gone, but that's what it felt to me. Yeah. You know, it just really felt so clinical, so cold. Here yeah. they are sorting all the instruments. It, it, there's no, there was nothing personal about it. So there was no kind yeah. of conversation yeah. before or even no. at that stage of the clinical, cold, uh, matter-of-fact manner uh, when you no. went. When yeah. you went, there was nobody there to talk about the emotional consequences, the trauma no. you went no. through. Are you all right? Because yeah. clearly, um, you are hysterical mm. at home during the event. You have other small oh, children I was in very the home. Bad. Um, but and I was very unwell for I'd say about six months afterwards. I was quite depressed and things like that. It, it takes a huge toll on you, and I absolutely understand that. You know, people will debate at what stage is the baby or whatever. And 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 sure, scientifically, there's different stages. But for me and my husband, it was our baby. It didn't matter whether it was you know six weeks, two weeks. If you weeks. were to com- you're correct. If you were to compare, say. Yeah you know, a miscarriage in, at 8, 10, 12, 14, yeah. 16 weeks, whatever. How, how much better is the system when it comes to a stillbirth where you, you might have a baby that is well, really full term? I haven't experienced it, but I would, I would like to think that hopefully that they would be better um, at that point um, for people. Thankfully, I haven't had to go through that, but I know of people who have gone through you know, and um, and I, I have spoken with many of them. Illness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, what would your what are your thoughts? Because many of the people that I've spoken to said that they were treated with the most beautiful uh, compassion and yeah, understanding. Yeah, and I would imagine they probably were. Yeah, and it, it's all handled um, very, very slowly. Um, there's no kind uh-huh. of matter of fact, cold standoffishness. Um, yeah. You know, they, they are wonderfully looked after in that case. And I don't doubt it. And I'm sure there's people that would have had. Um, good experiences having miscarriages as well. I think the problem for me listening yesterday was that we're nearly 20 years on and that the You're level of the stories, um, yeah. thing is still happening and I think that um, given all the standards and procedures that have been put in place now for hospitals and healthcare services it, it's really, really sad to see um, that kind of lack of empathy yeah. Uh, yeah. going on and as I said if, if clinically you don't need to be there I think that's okay if somebody could talk to you and explain it to you um, but what as to it, expect as, as you, or indeed the emotions yeah, that you might exactly be yeah. what to expect or okay. Okay. maybe you know that maybe you're, if you could have your other children minded for a day or two because you know it could be very traumatic yeah. anything like that no you're I putting think. it very well no yeah, I mean I hope that yeah. I hope that yeah. I know CUH will be listening to this and uh, management mm-hmm. will be listening and those in admin will be aware of the conversations and that something good will come out of sure. it. How and ever, you, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I can tell you one thing, you'll always hear of the critical stories involving any topic. You yeah. don't often I hear of the, you don't the, hear good, the good ones. You, you know? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. And I get that and the good ones are what... But the other side of that then, Neil, is that's what is it, it should be getting delivered. You know? We, we shouldn't have to... Um, reward or, or in somehow celebrate that they're doing their job right. You know, that might sound very harsh, but that's what should be provided. I think it's always great to celebrate people when they're doing a good job. Yeah. I'm the first person to say when I'm at work that I think that people need to be um, acknowledged and yeah. their work acknowledged, yeah. etc. But 
as a public service, as people going in to receive healthcare services, you know, you're compromised, you're vulnerable, you're there because there's something wrong or there's something wrong with a member of your family. You should not at that stage have to be worrying about whether they're doing their job right or not. And do you mind me? Yeah, do you mind me? Yeah, I know, I know. It should be, it should be the gold standard. Do do you mind me asking, I know it was 18 years ago, but you did go back in and and you brought the remains of your little baby. What, what, What happened then? With your um, baby. They told me they took it for, for testing. I was never given any options about burial or anything to do with that. Um, at the time, I think it didn't come into my head until I was home afterwards and I rang up and I was told, no, that that would have gone to astrology and there wouldn't be any way of getting that back. Um, I think the worst thing then for me is about a year later, I got like a VHI form out in the post asking me to sign for that admission and I was ringing them up saying, are you actually, are you kidding me? Um, You know, there's a lot of insensitivities and and one of the other things that someone mentioned there yesterday as well was about the the lack of joined up thinking there in terms of um, public services. Like when somebody passes away or somebody has a miscarriage, the system should have a bulletin. It should go to social welfare. It should go everywhere. My mum passed away two years ago and I took every card out of her wallet and I contacted everyone because I did not want my dad getting correspondence in the post um, addressed to mum, like everything from her Dunn's card to her Tesco card. So to, when you, you make know. those calls, you make it to the bank mm. as well and to the local Everybody, post office. Yeah. And do they, do they yeah. ask for proof? Because you could be anybody saying somebody's Yeah, dead. well, for banks and stuff, you have to send the death cert. Yeah. 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 You yeah. send a copy of the death cert. But I worked in administration for years, so that comes naturally to me to think of that, but most people wouldn't. So I think in in terms of public service, at a very, very minimum, they really should have some way of a bulletin going to the system where um, in the case of deaths, be it, you know, miscarriage or be it the baby of someone or our loved one. Left hand knowing what the right hand is doing. All right. Okay. Exactly. Thanks, Selena. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate it. No bother. Bye bye. Thanks to 868 Back in a minute. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 Red FM. Lots of texts and emails as well. Um, here is one of them just this side of 10 o'clock. I know you're talking about uh, currently the CUMH, but I had the most terrific experience back in 2006 in St. Finbar's Hospital when it was the maternity. I was 28 weeks pregnant and I was only 17 years old. I went into labour at 28 weeks as a miscarriage, which I would describe as the most horrific experience in the world. My waters broke and I was bleeding uncontrollably the whole way to the hospital. It was so bad. 28 weeks. When I arrived at the hospital, I will never in my life forget the experience I had as in shock uh, as uh, I was. I can still see the room, the nurse, the sound of her voice. It's just something I will never forget. This is 2006. I had a scan and the nurse said, yeah, unfortunately, there's no heartbeat and nothing was explained that I would be delivering the baby or anything. I was 17 years old, so maybe not so clued in to what should be happening. I was put into a room. I can still see it. It was like an old convent type room, old beds left in pain, which was obviously contractions. My sister and her now husband were with me and um, out of nowhere I felt the need to push and the nurse came running in and exactly what she said was oh great, it's all out now I was distraught looking at a baby of 28 weeks on the bed it's disturbing she took the baby, put him and put him his, his, put him, sorry, uh, there, sorry I just need to be sure I'm reading this correctly I'm seeing it um, she took the baby and put him 
His name is Jamie, by the way, into a blue plastic container in front of me and covered him in tissue paper. I won't go into the detail of how I felt, but I can imagine you can understand. They told me to go home and they would be analysing the baby and rang later to see did I want to let them take him to Kilcully Graveyard or bury him myself. And that was my baby. They said he would be buried with other babies. We went to collect him and buried him with my beautiful mother who died at the age of 19. So he is with uh, her now and I am content. I got absolutely no help after and the nurse was so cold. I will never forget it. I'm not surprised in the slightest that it's still going on. I'm happy to speak to you about it. I genuinely have never voiced this with anyone publicly, but I'm so angry over it still going on to this day. And that's from Roseanne. Perhaps I thank you for your email. And perhaps I will have an opportunity to talk to you if if you're up for it, because it would be a difficult story. Hard enough for you to email, but even more difficult uh, to talk it through. But I'm happy to do so if you wish to. Uh, Why are we so surprised with regards to the HSE? The HSE is a circus act and has been for years. We have clowns running it from the top down. They're constantly juggling different complaints for years. I personally work for them, unfortunately. And I've been constantly been wronged in my job. You're expected to take their abuse, but you're disciplined if you dare argue back. The management are like onions. There are so many layers to get to them. Unions have become part of them and something urgently needs to be done to put manners on them or they will continue as they are for many years to come. There's been so many scandals and investigations, yet nothing is ever done. They are the best cover-up I have ever come across. My advice to patients, staff and victims is to take them to court. Italy has uh, the mafia. Ireland's equivalent is the HSC. Uh, Fairly strong words. And I think maybe somewhat unfair to hard-working and diligent staff, perhaps. I'm so disappointed to hear that things haven't improved from others who miscarry. I had a miscarriage 26 years ago and had to stay overnight in Finbars because I had to have a DNC. This is a cleansing of the womb, lads. Um, I'm quite sure you, you probably know that anyway. And then I put in, I was put in a ward with new mothers afterwards. That must be awful. In the morning, the nurse asked me if I was breast or bottle feeding. Talk about confusion. I was given counselling, but it was a nun telling me that it was the will of God which didn't help. At least I didn't have to suffer a visit to the A&D, but it's such a shame that things haven't improved during these very traumatic times. I did have three boys, but the baby I lost will always be part of me, says Maureen. Text 0868104106. Back after 10. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Up the phone on 0818104106 if you wish to text. Uh, get in touch by 0868104106. And my apologies, uh, it's important enough uh, for Helena to uh, be on hold. I appreciate that, but probably way too long. So I apologize for that, Helena. Good morning. That's okay. Good morning. But I, I know you're keen to share your story because many others are. Um, so happy to yeah. happy to give you an opportunity. Tell us your own Thank tale. You. So Neil, um, 16 years ago, I had a miscarriage. Um, I was roughly 12 to 14 weeks, and I went in for my routine scan, and they couldn't find a heartbeat. So they gave me an option of going home, passing myself. Uh, Just move around a tiny little bit there, Helene, and see if I can improve the line. And while, while you're doing that, I will say that it was okay. 16 years ago in St. Finbar's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 16 years ago in St. Finbar's. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's, that's fine. Carry on. Thank you. Perfect. Um, I was given an option of going home, passing it myself. 
or having a DNC or taking two tablets at home. Um, I decided to go home and leave it run its course naturally. Um, within two weeks, I started bleeding really badly, so I went in. And they said to me, they were horrible. Like They, they were like, are you sure you were pregnant? And I was like, yes, I was pregnant. And I showed them the scan. Um, she brought me in. She was like, all right, so we give you two tablets. Um, go in there. So I waited in there for ages, for at least six hours. And so surely then you could check done. somewhere. I know we are talking about 16 years ago, but it wasn't the dark ages. They could, like you had a scan. I mean, you had, yes. you were pregnant. Why would somebody ask you that? I know. It's just horrific. Like, I still can't believe what's going on. And the care isn't there for some, it's just, uh, it's a job for some, some nurses. Like, don't get me wrong. I've dealt with a lot of, I had a son who passed away two years ago. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but he wasn't even supposed to be born. So I went through this as well up to, I found out I was 16 weeks pregnant and he had something wrong with his brain. There was no support there. It was just like, well, what do you want us to do about it? There's nothing we can do. There was no counselling. There was nobody there, even up to when I went into early labour, 35 weeks, I was admitted to hospital. There was no support there. There was no counselling. And this is only a couple of years, some years back? Um, so Jamie would have been 12 this year, so it was 12 years ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. So like, like, with regards to Jamie... Did anybody uh, sit with you or talk with you or give you helplines no. or pamphlets or numbers to call? Nothing like that? Nothing. I was just sent home and told to come back in two weeks to do another scan. And we were told I might pass him in a couple of weeks. He, he might make full term and then die when he was born. And... Um, and he lived till he was 10 years old. So I carried that for my full-term pregnancy um, with no support, no counselling. There was just no care there, even the the, son, the person who scans you. I used to have to go in every week to get scans and there was fluid on his brain and it got extremely bad. It was horrific. And when he was born then, he was just left there for two weeks in the neonatal to pass away. He didn't. And this doctor came in on the Monday morning and sent us straight to Temple Street and said he should have been sent up when he was born to get a shunt put in. So if it weren't for that doctor... Yeah. yeah. And what was Jamie's 12 years of life like? Uh, 10 years. Um, 10 years, my apologies. Very hard, like he... He was palliative care from the day he was born. He had seizures, he had sons, he couldn't eat, he couldn't. He was blind, he was deaf, um, he couldn't walk. But he was just such a happy baby. He was just so, like everyone that met him, the personality just shone out of him. And it was hard. Like, we didn't sleep for 10 years. We didn't, kept waking up thinking, is he, is he dead? Is he alive? Has he stopped breathing? Um, he's, he had numerous surgeries. So the shunt kept laughing, so we were up and down 10th Street. Um, there was one summer I was there all summer, and I had two other kids at home as well. 
Did he grow? I mean, did he grow into a young boy? He did, yeah. Yeah. He ended up with scoliosis, um, which actually, I think that at the end of the day, it punctured his lungs, 70 degree curvature. We had the option of getting the surgery, but he was too weak, like it would have killed him on the table, so... We just cared for him as much as we could until he passed away. But like, even pregnant with him, there was no support. It's, I, I'm just so cross and just so angry at this. There's no support. It doesn't matter whether it was, you were only a couple of weeks pregnant or not. When that line comes up yeah, and the pregnancy Yeah, that's takes, pregnant. That's a baby to many. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so with regards to Jamie, for those 10 years, every day was borrowed time, was it? For you and for oh, him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, knew absolutely. inevitably that that day would come. Yeah. It w- we were grieving for Jamie the day he was born. When I had the section, we went down to the, obviously, the operation room. We didn't even bring a nappy or a baby girl for him. Nobody explained to us what could happen, what couldn't happen. I went straight into recovery after he was born. And... He was crying, and then I was all confused because I was told this child wouldn't even be born. And then seeing consultants, and it was just cold. It's just so cold the way they spoke to us. Um, one consultant said, we've seen one case like this before. They lived till they were six months old. So when Jamie turned six months old, I was like, "What's going on? He's still alive." So, uh, well, you would think that you would think that in those early days or weeks, that you know, a baby is born, lives independently outside of the womb, has a heartbeat, is alive, that they would be due, you know, just as a human being and a baby, due the, the 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 best of medical care. I mean, I know one doctor eventually came along and said, "This boy, this baby needs to go to Crumlin," and did, and he lived for ten years. But why wouldn't it be the case that everybody would think that way? Yeah, after two weeks, they left him in the new to die. Like. He's aged the fluid in the brain on his brain. When they put the shunt in, he's, his head was opened. Do you know the way there's a baby? There's a At the top of the dome, yeah. yeah, yeah. His head was open from his ear to ear. Like. Is it that they, is it that, I'm just wondering, thinking out loud, is it that intervention would be cruel, perhaps? They, they gave him no chance. There was no hope for him. But he proved so many doctors wrong. Like, he was sent home, I don't know how many times, from from palliative care by bumblings, um, saying, oh, this is it. Even the last angel trip he got home, the bumblings driver said, that couldn't be Jamie Murray when he got the call. I brought Jamie home a year ago. <laughs> to on his angel trip, he was given no hope whatsoever. But he proved him wrong for ten years. But that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't. You shouldn't be made feel oh your child is going to live. Such a sad like story of such a little fighter. Yeah, yeah, such a little fighter. Uh, yeah. Sorry to hear that, but I think you've done, um, you know, a lovely tribute to your son and uh, our thoughts are with you because, you know, he's, he's always going to be in your mind. Um, 
You'll always love him, obviously. Yeah. Baby, I missed him, miscarriage. Like, it just made me so cross to hear that this is still going on when I was listening to the radio yesterday. So you, you actually miscarried at, at home on, in the bedroom, was it? No, sorry. I actually went in when they said, oh, are you sure you were pregnant? And I said, yeah, I was. They gave me the two tablets and I passed tissue or what it was, I don't know what it okay, was, on okay. the bedroom floor and they just wiped it up. And that was it. And they scanned me and they were like, yeah, you still need a DNC. They did that and sent me home. No follow-up, no care, no compassion. It was just so cruel. Okay. And you wouldn't do it to an animal like Yeah, okay. Um so many stories like that. Yours in St. Finbar's yeah. 16 years ago, many of the stories over the yesterday and this morning say that to some extent a lot of it hasn't changed. You, 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 in yeah. your text you said to me, to this day, I don't know what happened to my baby. No, I have no idea what happened to my baby. Nobody followed, nobody said, like they just wiped it off and took it away. I don't know what I don't know whether it was male or female. I, they said they'd send it away for testing. Nobody got back to me or rang to find out. Nobody. There's no record of it. No. Nothing. Yeah, a number of people have been saying that since yesterday morning, that the ter- that the phrase, send away for testing, it's said, yeah. but it, one wonders, is it actually done? Because nobody comes back any with any information regarding the test. I don't even know what the yeah. testing would be. Cause of death, maybe sex with the baby, things like that, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Just some closure, but there was no closure. Um, it was horrifically. Okay. And I had a baby after. Obviously, I, I had three boys after that. Um, and it definitely caused postnatal depression on me. It was a trigger towards it. Um, because you're worrying all the time when you're miscarried. Will it happen again? Or it was a factor of it. Absolutely. There was no support, and I think if I got the support and the counselling after it happened, um, obviously there's no explaining why you miscarry. Why you miscarry? But no, but I think counselling helps in many different ways, and one of the ways in particular is that it 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 it, it tells you and informs you that you're not alone in this. That this is not exactly. exclusive to you. That you know. Others yeah. also struggle and, um, you know, are upset and traumatised, yeah. you know. And there's a kind of a power in that saying, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listening to the radio last night or yesterday and listening to all those wonderful women who've lost their babies too. It's just, it's a comfort to know that I'm not the only one. I know, I know. You know. Look after yourself, Alina, and thank you for thank holding you and thank you for coming on air. Appreciate it. Thanks, Neil. You can always email neil at uh, redfm.ie.k. Good morning. Hi, Neil. How are you? It's very interesting because I was actually asking about, you know, maybe comparable stories with uh, with full birth, with full term, perhaps stillbirth, you know, um, and, 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 and then you appear on my on my screen. So good morning to you. What, 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 yeah, what you- well, mine is very like <laughs> mine is, I suppose, more of a positive story. Yeah, really. no, go ahead. Yeah, um, I want to hear them as well. We lost our baby on the 21st of September 1983. So it's just 40 years ago uh, in the Vonskers Hospital. And I had a totally different, um, I suppose, a totally different time there. 
like there was the nuns were running it at the time and there was a lovely nun there and I hope she doesn't mind if I mention her name her name was Sister Pascal and she asked my husband to bring up a camera and she took photographs of her and then um, we knew the undertaker who lived up the road from us and he went to the hospital with my husband and my brother and they they laid her out in the hospital um, in a little white cotton kind of a dress and she had roses and she the, the nun came in then to me and she wanted me to go down to see her and, and you know you're so distressed and you're so tormented I didn't really want to, but she used to keep coming in about every hour and eventually I went down and I was so glad I did because I got to see her and hold Why did her you not want to, little baby, little, your oh, little daughter Vicky? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I suppose I was just so distraught. I was after carrying her for 40 weeks. and But I did and I'm so glad I did. And um, and like even uh, like after they told us about the stillbirth association at the time, and we went to a good few meetings to that, so that was that helped as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I just I just kind of see that after forty years, things are nearly worse now than what they were then. Your experience was in the bonds, wasn't it? Forty. It years was. Ago. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and, yeah. And and little baby Vicky. Um, did you did 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 they bury her or did you bury no, her? No, no. We we bought a plot ourselves and we buried her and I wasn't at it because I was still in hospital with my husband Pat and my brother and a priest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were there was a priest there as well. Like it was just I like it was only a small little just a few like but it was you know, it was nice like mm. from you know, when you look at it today, I mean, I don't know. I just, and I just heard that girl on the radio yesterday morning and I sent, I wrote out a text about four or five times to send it to you and I raised it and then eventually I picked up the courage and I said, I'm sending in a text. Yeah, no, it's important. It, it that, is, yeah, because yeah. all too often, unfortunately, uh, we are all well, was very quick to criticise or find the negative or the awful stories. But, you know, yeah, yeah. that, that no, clearly... No, I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, I was in... I was distraught like over it and I'm still I still you you never forget like you just never forget you know it goes it stays with you like that's 40 years ago and it's still as fresh in my head as if it only happened yesterday you know no, yeah and yeah, do you think but, of Vicky in that regard that she would be 40 now and perhaps yes I do yeah. yeah she's grown up with my other girls yeah yeah she, she yeah. grew up alongside them yeah. What yeah, would she be doing? Yeah. Who would she be with? Was she a mother yeah. herself? Where what would she be? Yeah. 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 Did she stay? Yeah. Did she go? All those questions. Yeah. 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 No answers to them. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's my story anyway, Neil. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Okay. You did. You're Thanks, welcome. Kate. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks Well done. No one's talking about this. And I know so many people who've been through it. And honestly, I literally feel like I don't know what they've gone through. You hear people, they say they lost a baby, but you don't understand what that entails. It's harrowing. I'm in tears listening to it. Well done. Not everybody agrees. Um, please don't keep talking about this topic again this morning. You're opening a lot of wounds for people. It's going too far now. Uh, well, you're you're entitled to that thought or, or that opinion. I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, I think people, um, you know, in many ways we need to hear the stories for things to improve and for others then. It can help to talk about it. I'm blessed to say that I've never experienced a loss and my heart breaks for the women who have. I had a daughter when I was very young and had absolutely zero support while pregnant. I attended all appointments and scans on my own, so I was hopeful that the staff would at least be compassionate and supportive to any questions I had. 
um, I had. Uh, safe to say they were not. Um, very young girl. I found out that I was a high risk pregnancy at 22 weeks uh, from experiencing pain and swelling, severe swelling for many weeks. I had to stand my ground and refuse to leave the hospital to be actually diagnosed and treated. I didn't understand all of the medical terms. When I asked the midwife and consultant to explain them, I got eye rolls and I was asked, how old exactly are you? I couldn't believe my ears. The only time I felt like there was any bit of care was on the ward after giving birth as my daughter was premature. Uh, I won't give further information, but I was traumatised my pregnancy and still am to this day. I will never forget it. It sounds like the CUMH, to a large extent, hasn't changed much in my early 30s now, and I have a healthy, happy 12-year-old daughter. I never went on to have further children. I don't feel like the HSC actually sees pregnant women as a priority, and I find that horrible. And just some more here. No wonder our midwives are leaving in droves if they're being if they're not being abused on the wards by the public. They're being bullied on the airwaves. Who would be a midwife? They're burnt out, exhausted, and underpaid. Uh, I had a total hysterectomy at the end of June. I'm 48, and I'm not having any more kids. But I woke up in the recovery room with mothers after having twins and a single baby. Didn't bother me, but if I was younger and ready to have more kids, it would have bothered me. I just think that a big maternity hospital, it was very insensitive. Surely they have space to correct this. I had a horrific time after, with the aftercare of my baby girl. I had a C-section and hemorrhaged very badly, so I was put into a high dependency ward. My baby was vomiting and I couldn't get up to tend her and kept ringing the bell. I'd been awake for 48 hours, yet not one nurse offered to take my baby for a few hours. I ended up developing postnatal depression and I put it down to that traumatic experience. Um, back after the break, more calls, texts and emails after these. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Uh, sad stories, I know, Neil, but honestly, I just can't relate. I had a miscarriage, a baby loss at 23 weeks. And every midwife, doctor, healthcare assistant, catering staff, housekeeping staff and porters were all amazing. I was wonderfully looked after. Uh, I can't believe what I'm listening to this morning. If I were a nurse or a midwife, I'd be absolutely outraged at all of these people. Who are these people? Where did you get them from? There's absolutely no balance at all. Um, where did I get them from? There are people who are calling and going on air and telling stories and others are texts um, from people who we have called and spoken to. They're not bots. It's not automated. You know, it's not artificial intelligence. Uh, I was a midwife. Um, you spent the whole day yesterday talking about it. They don't want religion in this, so we don't know uh, what people want. We have a population increase of three and a quarter million and a hospital system built for three million. You can't please everybody. Another one here. Nothing has changed in 40 years. I was pregnant with twins, lost one in Erneville, went to the toilet, miscarried one of them. The nurse said, put it in a bucket and that she'd look after it. Uh, my son, um, as in the other twin, was 40 last Monday. So thank you for all of those. Um, I'm happy to stay with some more calls for now um, because there are many of them and I appreciate that uh, everybody has a, a story to share. Uh, I'm not so sure about Anna. I think that line number may well be incorrect. So let me see if she's on line two, three, in fact, three. Anna, good morning. Anna, can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you. Okay, so you... Um, Oh my God! It says you it could you could have died. Is it? Oh God! I don't know kind of where to begin, but yeah, pretty much that's what the surgeon told me. If I hadn't made a fuss, they would have found me dead in the bed. Okay. So how long ago are we talking about? 
pregnant. Okay, um, this isn't a great phone line. There seems to be phone issues this morning. Perhaps moving around might improve it. Do you want to try that? I'm sorry. If you can hear me, just let me know. Okay. Hello? Let yeah, let's see if that's any better. Um, is that any better? Yeah, so go ahead. Go ahead. Um, what has happened is I was after falling pregnant and it was in June 2021 and everything was fine. I was I was only about four or five weeks gone because I had an app that tracked dates and cycles. And one morning I was getting really bad pain and I was spotting so into my doctor and my doctor had said to me, judging from the area and the significance of the pain, that she was worried about it being an ectopic pregnancy. So she had written a letter for me to take straight down to the CUMH, asking him to scan me to rule out um, an ectopic. Mm. So I went down to the CUMH, um, we'd done a pregnancy test in the doctor's surgery and it'd come up positive. So the doctor had given me that alongside the letter and asked me to go to the CUMH um, emergency. So I went down there, gave him the letter, um, waited in the waiting room, was called through and had my blood pressure done. They took um, they took the letter off me in the pregnancy test and asked me to give him a urine sample. So whilst they were doing the urine sample, they'd done my bloods and they came back and just said that the urine sample had come back negative and that what was possibly happening was a miscarriage and that the, there was nothing they could do and, you know, just to wait around for the bloods or I could go home and they would phone me a home with the blood results. And I said, listen, the letter says that they're worried about it being an ectopic pregnancy. You know, aren't I supposed to be scanned? She said, no, the urine sample has come back negative, so chances are you've already had the miscarriage. Um, We'll call you with your blood. So they let me go without scanning me. So a week goes by, I get a phone call saying that the blood results um, had showed low levels of pregnancy hormone and they'd make an appointment for me to come back to the hospital to have the bloods redone. So I went back to the hospital when they told me to go, so I think it's about three or four days later, and they said to me, you know, the bloods again will take a couple of hours if you want to wait in the waiting room or go across to Wilton. I will call you. So about an hour later, I get a phone call anyway saying that the HCG levels were up and they were going to bring me in and, and monitor me. So was taken in anyway. And what they did, they scanned me. They said they couldn't find anything, but the HCG levels were there and they'd just keep me in for monitoring. So for about eight or nine days, they just kept doing my blood to see if the levels had gone up and scanned me every two to three days. Okay. But as this was going on, I was like experiencing a lot of pain up my side, started getting pain in the tip of my shoulder, my chest, my arm. Um, and they just kept giving me buscapan and paracetamol, buscapan and paracetamol. And then the pain was getting so bad that they were saying that it was indigestion. So they started giving me peppermint tea capsules. And this went on. I have two women that I actually still speak to to this day that were on the ward with me. There was only the three of us in the room. And... Every time I first about it, I was like, please, I know my body, something isn't right, I'm dizzy, I can't, you know, I can't walk, the pain is in my chest and in my shoulder, and they kept telling me what I had was indigestion. Then they took me down and scanned me and brought me back up and said what I had was something called a pregnancy in unknown location. Which and, sorry, it's not, it's, try and move around again, you said a pregnancy again, in an unknown, sorry, lo- an unknown, unknown location. location, yeah. Yeah, they said what it was was I was pregnant, but they didn't know where the pregnancy was because nothing was showing up on the scans and that they would just continue to scan and continue to do my bloods. And 
the HPG was raising slowly. So whatever pregnancy if it was, they wasn't going to be viable anyway. But anyway, it came to, I think it was the Sunday, and I was in an awful state, and I would call in, and they would give me peppermint tea again. I was like, no, I don't want peppermint tea. I don't want boscopan. I know something's not wrong. And I was screaming to the point where I had a huge panic attack. I threw up. I was in an awful state. They finally called a consultant, and she came up, took one look, look at me, and rushed me down into into emergency surgery. And what was about to happen was where they hadn't scanned me, in the beginning, like my, my GP had asked, they'd let the ectopic get so big that I had twisted the fallopian tube and was pinned behind my bowel. So when they finally came to scan me, they couldn't find it because it was concealed and the tube was after rupturing and the pain in my arm and in my chest was my entire pelvis, my womb was after bleeding internally and had just literally destroyed the inside of me and it was the fact that it was pinned behind the bowel. Okay, okay. It was rather like a slow bleed but if I hadn't called attention to it, then I would have, I would have well bled to death, you know. So, so they operated, was, there was surgery then? Oh, did. There mm-hmm. was an emergency surgery. They took me down, the fallopian tube was after rupturing. My womb was three times the normal size. I bled into my pelvis to the point where okay. the irritation of the blood on the diaphragm was what was causing the pain in the arm and the chest. And it's one of the first things that midwives are trying to do okay. when it comes to a topic for term bleeding. I understand all of that without you know without dwelling on because it's it's, yeah. it's quite medical. But did it did it yeah. result in a you had to have did you have a hysterectomy I then? Did. I did because what was after happening was they where I had bled internally it had caused damage in the other tube and I ended up having four surgeries after that to correct mistakes that were made because. It's a huge story, but two days later, I ended up with a huge blood clot in my stomach where they tried to extract the ectopic pregnancy and they'd, they didn't realise how big it was and they'd caused a huge hematoma in my stomach. But they knew they'd done wrong because when I come in after being out, they put me in a private room on different wards. And then I've ended up, it, it resulted in this year, they'd done so much damage that I had to have full hysterectomy. Okay. Okay. In, in March of this year. Okay, horror story f- for sure. Um, and but are, uh, So are you going quietly over that? Uh, no, and um, what had happened, because uh, because I've had so many visits back and so many surgeries, and they've done, they actually damaged my bladder when they've done the hysterectomy, so I'm underneath urology now for that as well. Um, one of the nurses there had seen, obviously, what had gone on and had known me from the amount of times I've been in, the amount of surgeries that I've had. And she actually called a member of the hospital union and they came up and took a statement. And obviously once everything, once my ducks are in order, then I will be, I will be going to a solicitor about it. But it's been like two years. I've had over 20 hospital stays, six Mm. surgeries in total. But the thing is, my partner and I, we don't have any kids together. Um, So it's taken away, you know, his opportunity of having a family as well. And the care that I got there was horrific in the aftercare to the point where I had to call outside for someone to bring me in pain relief. Crawl. Because no one was... Yeah, I had to call family oh, members call. to bring me in something for the pain. The outside. Because you're ringing the bell and nobody's coming. Everyone's leaving you there. Like, it, it's it's horrific. I don't know whether they're overworked or what's going on, but there's kind of no compassion. And you're seen more as a number and a nuisance rather than, you know... That's an horrific story. That's an horrific story. In 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 regards to what happened with the baby, they actually I signed a form and it was the I was six weeks gone and they what they'd done is they have a they have a site in Saint Mary's where all 
uh, topics and miscarriages that are like not able to have a proper funeral are are put down and you know you sign a form to consent to it and they let you know you know that the baby's been buried in like a, a group plot you know mm. but it's just led to so much trouble and so many operations and so much pain and and it's just it's horrific you know and after listening to people on the phone yesterday I know people have good stories but nobody like good stories get you nowhere it's the stories where people are mistreated to such an extent something has to be done about it mm. it's it's not fair. No, I'm starting to see more on. texts now and some of them are actually from people working in hospital settings who are very angry about the negativity um, and you actually, I begin and wondering are we doing a disservice to those that actually do great work, you know? No, not at all because I think there's three or four nurses there that took really good care of me mm. but on the other hand I was nearly taken away from my two children. I now can't have any children with my current partner. People are being sent home, their mental health is in a state anyway after COVID and I know the hospital system is overrun and it's not their fault but compassion, you can have compassion, you know what I mean? No, I I know that, I know, I'm just cognizant of those that are exhausted and working long hours and are committed to their jobs and doing the best they can and they feel as if they're now being bullied or bashed about on the air, you know. not bullied or bashed it's nothing, it's not a personal attack, it's to make so many people are afraid to speak up and so many people are afraid because they're going to be judged that they're complaining or they're whinging or no like these women have lost babies they've lost like you can't imagine what it's like to have the option of like having a family well, I'm hearing them I'm hearing the stories since yesterday morning an yeah. Oversight. Yeah. this yeah. is an oversight it should have been scanned okay. had I been scanned they would have found the ectopic given me some tablets I would have passed it on and I'd be okay. I would have had no surgeries, and I would have been able to go on and have enough have a family with my partner. You know, it's it's an oversight. I know, and and, and, an and you said that very well. And I, I think that there are more chapters in your story yet to come. So good luck okay. with that, Anna. Good luck with that. Thank you so much. Right. And I'm really sorry for all the women that have gone through what they've gone through. You know, they need. I hope they get like the help they need. Okay, thank you, thank you. Talking about thank help, you. incidentally, there is the Miscarriage Association of Ireland. And this conversation with uh, Jennifer Duggan may help uh, at least some people. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? And I'm also cognizant of those in hospital settings that do good work. I know it's easy for me to say, and people might suggest it's just a glib comment, uh, but um, there seems to be a lot of very disturbing stories the last couple of, of morning, yesterday, and indeed, and indeed this morning. Um, you you joined the Miscarriage Association having gone through six miscarriages yourself and finding no help, was it? Yeah, that's right. I suppose, I suppose my own story or my background was we got married when I was, when I was 23 in 2007. So I suppose when you get married at 23, you never think that you're going to have an issue when it comes to starting a family. So we got pregnant in 2008 and had no issues. It was textbook pregnancy I felt very sick which I was taking as a good sign and we went in for our dating scan at 13 weeks to be told um, that they couldn't find the heartbeat and that it was a missed miscarriage so like that it was just just the utter devastation of it and it was leaving hospital not knowing kind of where to turn to or where to get support and I suppose that's how we first got in contact with the Miscarriage Association of Ireland I got in touch with their phone lines and there was somebody there that I could talk to who had gone through a miscarriage and who knew what I was going through. And just to have that kind of support, to have somebody to talk to that got it, mm. 
just mm. was it was invaluable. And, w- w- and I, with you know, with mm. with all of the calls and emails and texts since yesterday morning, um, y- interesting. You said that miscarriage is still quite taboo mm-hmm. in, yeah, exactly. in medical so, settings. Is it? Not even in medical settings. I think just as a wider societal issue, I think it's not really spoken about. Um, so even having people on yesterday and this morning and speaking about it, it's great because it just gets the conversation going and it gets people talking and it, it shows people that have gone through the loss of a baby through miscarriage that it is okay to talk about your baby and it's okay to speak about them. Um, and I think it's, it's a wider societal issue that people don't always know what to say what to say to somebody when they've lost a baby because unless you've been through it, it's really hard to fathom the depths of the grief that you do go through. I mean, when when you think of a miscarriage, a lot of people can go, you've lost a baby, it's for however many weeks it is, and they don't see it as such a big thing. Do they even the see it is, as a baby? Yeah, you see, a lot of people don't, and I suppose the reality is, when you see those two lines, you've your future planned out, so you've Christmases, you've schools, you've names, you've, you've this whole little person envisaged in your mind, and you've their future planned out, so you you lose your baby, but you also lose the future that you had planned out in your head. So it's that grief of what you've lost as well. So it's, it's compounded and then it's, it's quite a hidden grief because you don't have, you, you don't always have a tangible thing that you can say to people, this is what I've lost. It, 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 it's really hard for people to grasp mm, the, mm, the, the, mm. the depth of and we need And also, let's include partners in this, um, you know, yeah. dads or partners or... Fathers yeah, exactly. and husbands and what have yeah. you. So and, the, if, and, and the dads are often forgotten and I think that was something that that I used to get quite angry about with the people who used to always ask how, my husband how I was doing and nobody used to ask how he was doing. Yeah. And it was something that used to make me quite angry was that nobody asked him, are you okay? How are you doing? Because they feel it as well and they, they have to see their partner going through the pain and the suffering of the physical miscarriage as well as the mental turmoil that you go through. Okay. It, it, it would appear from many of the people over the last couple of days to be very clinical, the process within, say, for instance, the CUMH. Uh, they're the kind of calls and texts that I've been, that I've been getting. And, and others can go back 20 years or 40 years when it was similar or perhaps even worse. You know, we would have had St. Finbar's then and the Bonds and, the, you know, um, obviously there would have been Aaronville and, and things like that. But, but if the help isn't being given and, and CUMH needs to work a bit on compassion... Um, th- people need to find it outside of the hospital settings, is it? Yeah, so I suppose like that, uh, there's always room for improvement. I don't think it's, it's unique to CMH. I think across the board, like you see, from employers to hospitals to wider society, there's always room for improvement. But I think when it comes to support, that peer support is invaluable. Just having somebody that you can talk to that gets it. And it mightn't necessarily be somebody that you even know. So like sometimes people can find it quite hard to talk to their even their partner or their own families because it could be six months down the line that the grief hits again because it, it does come in waves. It's not linear and it does come, come in waves. So, I mean, six months down the line, somebody might be really struggling again and kind of feel that they can talk to their partner mm. their partner might seem to be doing okay. Mm. Mm. And having that peer support and that's, I suppose, something that you get through the Miscarriage Association. Uh, just an interesting well. point you make about employers. Do you, do you think that employers or the workplace should treat it where it has happened to an employee as a death in the family? Yeah, definitely. And, and again, I suppose there has been there has been improvements recently. I mean, the likes of Lidl and places have brought in 
specific leave for people that have gone through the loss of a baby through miscarriage. And I think there's other employers following suit in that regard. But yeah, I, I mean, going back to, we'd say 2008, when we would have had our first loss, I had to take leave as sick leave or I had to take unpaid leave. Yeah. There was no provisions there for it. Yeah, so yeah. It's definitely something that employers are looking at and I think there are huge improvements in that regard as well, but I think they can more is needed. Okay, okay. So what what help and services, advice and uh, counselling would um, Miscarriage Association offer in Cork, for instance? Yeah, so I suppose in terms of the support we offer in Cork, I suppose we're not counsellors, so it's not counselling, it really is. Well, a listening ear then, a compassionate ear. Yeah, and and that's that's exactly it. So I suppose what we do in Cork is we do have an in-person meeting and it's every two months. So our last meeting was September, so our next meeting in Cork is the 21st of November. And that takes place in the SMA Centre in Wilton. And like that, it's just it's just a chance for people to meet up and to talk and to, to share their own stories. And there's no judgment. You can just chat with people who've been through it. You can share your story because there's great healing in sharing your story. But likewise, there's great healing in hearing other people's story and knowing that you're not alone in your grief and how you're feeling. Um, and I suppose the other thing we've offered as well is we do do Zoom meetings every month, and the next one is the nineteenth of October on Zoom. So they're on the yeah on Zoom, so it's third Thursday of every month right. we do the Zoom meetings, and again it's just a chance for people just to, to come on and, and be with people that get it. Okay, okay. Everybody now listening to me, or an vast majority of them, can can Google and search the Miscarriage Association of Ireland. Can probably look at what you do in Cork. And can get the yeah. details and the dates and the you know the the, the face-to-face support meetings, the Zoom meetings, yeah. the phone and numbers phone lines as well. Yeah, yeah, the phone lines. There are a few of them actually, um, and the web address is www.miscarriage.ie, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. okay. So I will give out one number, if you like, perhaps the 087365 number, and then encourage people yeah. to go through the website for all other information that they might feel they could use. Yeah, exactly. And like that, the, the phone lines are there and there's always somebody. And if, if we can't answer for any reason, if people just leave their number, we will get back to them. It's just we can't ring back unless they leave their number. I know. But if they leave the number, we will come back. OK, thank you, Jennifer. Much obliged to you for taking the call. And good luck with the very important work you do. One of those helplines is 8 is 87 365 um, so bear that in mind if um, the phone isn't answered leave a message and leave your number uh, and also check out online with the Google search Ireland, and you'll find all the help you need for the region that you're in back after the break get it off your chest call Neil Prenderville now on 0818 Red FM so I hope it helps um, with regards to situations that you may have been in your own life to hear of other stories like that over this morning and indeed yesterday morning. Just another few texts ahead of 11 o'clock. Um, uh, in the CUMH, things haven't changed. My wife went in a lot of pain and was dismissed by a junior doctor. She had a miscarriage at home two hours later, brought back by ambulance. The fetus was in a white box and was put in a backpack. She was told, ring your husband and go home. We found the experience brutal. On the flip side, and not taking for any of those ladies' stories, I had my three babies in the CUMH. Each time, the midwives were angels in disguise. 
and the care received for both me and my babies from start to finish couldn't have been better. They work damn hard out there to do their best for people and you need to remember that. Uh, just to say, I also had a traumatic birth in the CUMH because of induction. The baby survived after both of us being in ICU for eight days. That was in 2016. So obviously there's something going wrong with the inductions up there. Uh, don't know about that. I mean, I don't want to be putting the fear of God of people who are pregnant either. I mean, uh, far be it for me to second guess your own situation. But you both ended up in ICU uh, and both of you survived. And I'm hoping you have a, a very healthy baby. I uh, can't come on air, but listening to the topic is distressing. 14 years ago, I was 17 and I was told at nine weeks to go home and pass the fetus. I wasn't told what to do with the baby afterwards. I wasn't given any support. Unfortunately, young and naive, I flushed my baby because I got such a fright. I didn't know what to do. I was so young and I now have to live with that because I was, it was not explained to me what to do. This is so hard to write, realising while listening to these stories that others were told to bring the baby in or bury the baby. I didn't do that. I was told absolutely nothing but to pass it. I remember also bleeding heavily and cramping and I told the nurse she brought me into a room uh, and told me to show her my pad. Um, just one or two more f- for now and uh, I'm happy to come back to this in the future but there has been a massive response to it. So sad that so many women are still being treated with so little empathy. Uh, I unfortunately lost my baby and while I was waiting to go into the theatre for a DNC I was left on a trolley outside the theatre to wait my turn. Uh, it suddenly got very busy. As I lay on the trolley, I had to witness new mothers all coming out of theatre with new babies in their arms. I was going for a D and C. While it's a very joyous occasion for these women, and so it absolutely should be, it absolutely broke my heart as I waited to have my baby removed after my baby had passed. I felt so alone and so sad. It just seemed so insensitive and hurtful that I was wheeled down and left there on a trolley. But I will never forget the kindness that was shown to me by a male theatre nurse who just happened to pass me in the corridor heading for his break. He spotted me crying and he said, Are you OK? You don't need to see this. And he wheeled my bed into a side entrance so I didn't have to witness it. I remember this man. He was a tall man with lots of tattoos. I didn't get his name as I was devastated at the time, but I will never forget his kindness and the empathy he personally showed me as he headed for his work break. Um, it's a very hard topic for me to talk, but I hope you get to read this out. And one final one, depressing topic. When will it end? I'm heartbroken listening to women and men this morning and yesterday. It's so sad. Going off topic, I can honestly say that healthcare has deteriorated drastically. I had a terrible experience recently with my brother in a hospital and how cold and uncompassionate staff are. I'm not saying all, but a certain amount. Uh, and I'm a nurse and that's what made it all the worse. Um, is is there is there um, a growing amount of people who think that this is depressing the topic that it shouldn't be spoken about that we need to move on? Please do let me know. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Okay, I dedicated a lot of time this morning and indeed yesterday morning to people sharing their stories, and thankfully there were some positive ones as well. If I could just do a few texts at this stage and then move on, and happy to come back to it again in the future. I hope that the last couple of days has made a difference to people who may have felt that they were alone, that their story or their journey was exclusive to them. It certainly was not. Uh, In 2019 and 2015, I remember a midwife who could be retired now. 
how rude she was, commenting on my weight gain and stretch marks, telling me to eat healthy when I leave the hospital. To be honest, I wasn't overweight, but she just seemed to nag at me the whole time. This was skin and bone, so it just felt like I was being fat shamed. Um, I hope she's retired by now. I always wanted to say something about her, but I was a young mother and nervous. I found the CUMH a mixed bag. Some midwives were angels and would go above and beyond. But even one morning after I gave birth, I needed a maternity pad and I was scolded for not having enough of my own. Um, the thoughts of my time there brings back memories and makes me shiver. Correct me if I'm wrong, but did not over 75% of the population vote to strip the life from the unborn? It's not the argument of this over... Is it not the argument of this overwhelming majority that the unborn child is not a child at all, but rather a clump of cells? With this in mind, can we conclude that all your contributors are now so publicly shedding tears for the tragic stillborns and miscarried angels that they only represent the other 20, 25%? Or... Um, are they simply a bunch of crocodile tear crying hypocrites, says Richie. Um, I think people deserve care and support and compassion from all of us. But, um, you know, I suppose in a democracy you're entitled to your opinion. But um, it's, you know, it's a traumatic event and people deserve care, support and compassion and proper medical care. My granddaughter died in my daughter's womb. They brought her into the world and they were so good to her in the regional hospital we held her and had a little service there afterwards. Um, somebody else texted to say they had 10 pregnancies and 6 miscarriages. For one of them, I was given tablets to take home. I'd never do that again as the pain was horrific. Uh, I had one DNC, three I passed myself at home, 6 miscarriages. For the last one, I was admitted at 17 weeks pregnant and I was put into labour and passed the baby in the hospital bathroom. The nurse was lovely and asked if I wanted to see the baby. My husband answered first, um, and said no but the nurse asked what about mum and I said yes so they brought out the baby afterwards and allowed us to spend time together my husband found it very difficult and left soon afterwards to give me time but I have to tell you I cherish this time and I found it so serene and beautiful I cuddled the little baby and I was able to tell the baby how much I loved him and how many sisters he had I couldn't believe that I was getting to hold this tiny miracle it was need, and I needed the time um, and I only realise it now more than ever before. Lovely text, lovely nurse. Uh, I had to have a story from my young children after my first miscarriage in case it happened again. So each time I was pregnant, I would tell the children right up until the day I gave birth that mommy makes angels for holy God. So we won't know until I deliver the baby if it's a baby for us or for holy God. Uh, and one or two more, and uh, we'll leave it out there for now. Uh, my sympathies to all the women who are to endure such neglect regarding the loss of their babies. I lost my boy at 26 weeks, and the kindness and care from the hospital was amazing. My GP was there all of the time. They gave me my baby in a gorgeously decorated blue box to bury. Uh, this was in New Zealand, though, 35 years ago. Uh, you never forget the little things that make a traumatic event bearable, says Maria. My husband was away at sea and I was in Kent on my own as all my family were in Ireland. I had an early miscarriage uh, when the doctor in the hospital told me I nearly died with the horror and I said no, um, I didn't. His answer was, if I was talking to someone, his answer to me was if he was talking to someone who was very stupid. He said, we do a DNC. I was extremely upset at losing the baby, but also made feel stupid. That made it all the more terrible and I was also on my own. 
Um, there are many more lads uh, and I could really be here all morning perhaps I may well come back to it I want to appreciate everybody who got in touch and shared their stories I hope by sharing them it may well make a difference all they heard in the news there at 11 o'clock Hick were talking about um, probably maybe issues regarding diagnosis in hospitals because of overcrowding that our health system is stretched to the limit and will continue to do so particularly when we hear of politicians saying that our population will continue to grow and grow quite rapidly, not just here at home, but also people coming in from overseas to make this their home. But we have a public realm that just isn't coping now, and I worry that it will cope even less as time goes on. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now, 0818-104-106. Red FM. In other news, we were talking recently about the amount of people that go about without a driving license and still on a learner permit, like 30 years or even longer. Uh, I was on a learner permit driving around with my kids for 24 years. Every time I was ever stopped, I pretended to look in the bag for ages and the guard would end up saying, is it a full license? Yes, Garda, I'd say. And he would usually say, bring it into the Garda station within seven days. And then I go in with the provisional and they tick it off as seen. And off I go. <laughs> For nearly a quarter of a century. Now, I did pass my test after plenty of attempts about five years ago, only because there was a medical emergency in the middle of my test and myself and the tester had to stop. <laughs> as we were both first responders and the poor fellow was a bit shaken after it, I'd say. So he passed me in my test and I leapt up and hugged him in shock. I phoned my husband who's convinced I must have bribed him and didn't believe that I'd passed till he saw the full licence. I still can't drive. Well, you can drive. You must be able to drive. You're tw- at least 25 years in a provisional licence. Surely be to God you learned how to drive. You may not have passed the test because it was stopped early because of a medical emergency. <laughs> but it's a good story nonetheless. And then one from earlier on this morning in a light-hearted note was telling you about David Beckham and the routine he has about, you know, last to bed at night and cleaning everything. He, he, he seems to be quite obsessive in his cleaning. I wouldn't be that bad late at night. But Marie says, I'm like you. I can't stand anything in the sink or around the place before I go to bed. It's easy for you, though, as you're posh. <laughs> I'm far from posh, I can tell you. And you have a dishwasher, I'm sure, which I do. I never had one of those because they use a lot of electricity. So she does it all by hand. One of the other big things, of course, in in our home, I wonder how many other homes are like that, is nobody really has a big problem loading the dishwasher, lads, right? But everyone in our house has an absolute phobia about emptying it. And sometimes I've found myself doing that, opening it and find that everything inside it is clean, closing it, filling the sink with water, putting in the washing up liquid washing everything putting it up on the sink drying it and putting it away what's that about like why not just why don't I empty the entire dishwasher and then reload it again I eventually do it after a while isn't the mind an amazing thing then there was some research out recently that said uh, Cork may be the second largest city in Ireland but it's now officially the second friendliest in Europe. Now, I do have some research recently which says that Ireland is in the top 10 safest countries in the world, and you didn't necessarily agree with that, and I'll read you some of those texts soon. But we are the second largest city in Ireland, but officially the second friendliest in Europe. We're way ahead of Dublin, incidentally. Condé Nast, Reader's Choice. Apparently, how many of them? Well, there's 240,000 people submitted responses. So it's fantastic to be second in Europe as regards to friendliness. They described the port city of Cork as having a big personality, an exciting culinary scene, plenty of coffee shops, galleries, museums, and an iconic food market. And we should remember that, shouldn't we? 
Dublin came in fifth. So we're well ahead of them. We're second. But a place that I visited recently, actually, is in northern Spain in the mountainous Basque country. Have you guys been there? It's the resort town of San Sebastian. That got top spot. That came in at number one. But not too bad to come in as the second um, most friendly uh, city in Europe, don't you think? With a big personality. Recently, well, recently, my arse, I think it was back in 1982, was it RTE went out with cameras uh, and asked dubs what they think of, of Cork people. I don't know if you've heard this before. It's archive footage on the streets of Dublin in 1982 when Dubliners were stopped as they were passing by and asked an important question. What do you think of Cork people? Let's see what they said. They're um, sly and cute. When you ask them... Um, which way to go, you know, as a foreigner. They take their time, they explain, and they include lots of little stories, happenings, and opinions of their, that we chose their own um, personality, and I think the great sense of humor they have. I think they're a nice race of people, you know. Any particular qualities springs to mind about them? Well, there is one man that I follow, and that's uh, Liam O'Murico. You know, because you learn, you, you know, you you can get the basics of the Irish and the English together, you know. I had that incident in, in Rome with the approach by a West Cork man for directions and they didn't know. I thought he was a partner, actually. <laughs> uh, maybe it's to do with the southern end of the country that they uh, have this milder conditions down there. They seem to be more pleasant. Of course they're cold, you From outside Dublin, anyone outside Dublin's a cold, she. Can you hear me okay? Sorry, my apologies. Line two. There you are. Siobhan. 
Hello. Hi, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about about Apari in Belgooli, but just ahead of um, that particular nursing home, there's an an alarming amount of them have closed. Um, you know, in the last few months, I think you put the figure at is it thirty seven now have closed. Yeah, um, so when we got the news that um, Apri Living Belgooli was closing, there was a public um, meeting in the Huntsman in Belgooli the following week and Ty Daly from Nursing Home Ireland. Nursing Homes Ireland was there and he quoted that. He said that Belgooli would be the 37th home to okay. close. So you're and, looking at a loss of at least, at, least a, a hundred, at least 1,100 beds so far and more to come, right? Well, what he was saying was that this is an avalanche and that it needs to be stopped. Okay. Um, and okay. obviously, you know, our concern was stopping Belgooli from closing, which doesn't appear to be okay. um, happening, unfortunately. No, yeah, and it certainly we... is, you know, given the fact that we have an ageing population and that care of the elderly should be a priority, it is, it is a massive concern because those beds are not being replaced anywhere else. And there's already a push and, and a correct push um, to try and keep people at home. But the home care service is under acute pressure, short-staffed. Everything is. Enough. Everything so is. So, you know, when these, when these homes are closing, then it, it is literally a question of where are these people going to go. So, you know, the homeless crisis is being, uh, is being massively increased, but with the most vulnerable members of our society. Now... Absolutely. And our public realm won't be able to survive this pressure. It really won't. Um, We have all sorts of problems in all different areas of our our public system, whether it's health or education or or nursing homes or childcare. Um, our health settings, of course, we're hearing about that all of the time. Can I, can I just say with regards to Appery Living, this is a 68-bed facility. Facility Now, HICWA were in there, and if I remember correctly, they had issues with non-compliance regarding fire precautions. There are issues that are being investigated regarding residents' money and funds and how they were managed and allegedly moved from different bank accounts. There were also issues regarding uh, many residents being unhappy with meals and food and staffing levels uh, and their rights in general. Um, how, how have you found it with regards to your loved one? I think it's Judy, your mum, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, and it's interesting that that's your summary of that, Neil, because um, from, the, from Belgooli's perspective, um, we haven't experienced any of that um, the staff in Belgooli are incredible. They are short-staffed, but they all work really, really hard. And it's very, very clear that they all care for their residents. I mean, speaking to some of them since the closure announcement, they have been in tears speaking to me, and it's genuine, authentic tears. Um, I, it, we haven't experienced that at all. I, I'm, my understanding with the funding um, and the using of, of residents' funds is that that's... Um, a group-wide issue as opposed to being specific to Belgooli. I, I, I stand, you know, able to be corrected on that, but I'm not aware of that. And certainly but when mum went in there, there was no question. We were never asked to put any of her funds into their into their bank account other than, you know, what gets paid in. No, I know. And these are under investigation. If you don't have any yeah. issues with the list that I gave out, that's, that's fine by me. But it's HICWA are closing it. And that is my issue because if I, you know, I am in there very regularly. They, they, they have a new annex which was built in 2019, and an older section of a building. My understanding is that that Hicka have issues with some of the infrastructure of the older building, but for them to have a problem with the newer building and for them to then blanketly go, this is not good enough, and create 
um, I don't know situations, and I think this is where we have to, you know, investigate why are the other why are the other thirty six closed. HICWA needs to be there to ensure the safety of residents, and I absolutely get that. And I totally understand that there are situations in which clo- uh, clo- uh, the homes possibly should have been closed. But when regulations get to a point that it is pedantic and it is tick boxing and it is power crazy individuals just doing a job as opposed to making sure that we have beds available, there needs to be a balance. And my issue is that HICWA needs to be held accountable for decisions that they are making that have consequences. Um, how are the other residents and the families of the residents reacting? Are they like-minded to you? Is it that you don't want it to close? There has been an undertaking to find new residential settings for everybody. Um, there's been an undertaking. Um, so basically we have all just got on with looking after our own residents, uh, with looking after our own family members, and, and we are all looking for other beds for them because I think there is also a sense that it is inevitable and it is going to happen whereas what should have happened is that there should have been and whether this is the hse or whether this is hicwa i don't know because there has been just a dearth of communication what needs should have happened is that somebody should have come in and taken over the running of the place in order to keep those residents in their homes and there are people there my mother's been there for four years she loves it she adores does she yeah she's made she's made she's she's a sociable woman and she's made friends there and and she loves the staff and she loves the her she loves her room her room is her sanctuary and she's just incredibly happy there she looks she went in there four years ago she looks four years younger now than when she went in there oh, and, oh, right. and it, it you know it and they they have great activities and that's you know and, very very important for her and is she so, aware of the potential coming down the track of having nowhere well, We've tried to protect her from that because, um, um, I mean, her short-term memory is poor, so you could tell her something and she may not remember it. So so we've gone with, well, why give her the worry in terms of just trying to find an alternative and just see if we can get her, get her settled. But we haven't been able to find an alternative. And there are now, I mean, the place is hollow now when you walk in there. There are so few residents in there now because other residents have, have managed to, to find other homes. And, you got 20 days. You got 20 days left. Yeah. I know, but I can't manufacture a bed, Neil. But, the, but, but I have a couple of... I, have a co- I, know, I know, but I didn't even think it was up to you because, firstly, I did get a response from the HSC. We are aware this private nursing home has been issued with a closure order. A HSC team is working to support residents under the nursing home support scheme to find suitable alternative places we understand this is a difficult time for residents and their family. We'll continue to assist them in identifying placements in other nursing homes in the region. Has anybody done that with you? What we have all done is we have all registered our loved ones with every nursing home available, if that's appropriate or, you know, whatever is convenient for people. And when beds become available, then you may get a phone call saying there is a bed available. But that bed also needs to be appropriate for the person that's going in there. I understand that, so, but, you, but you've done that. Have you had any assistance as per the statement from the HSC to help you? There have been phone calls made when beds have become available. I know, I know that has happened. All right. But okay. that, that's just a situation of you're sitting there waiting for the phone to, to ring. If a bed becomes available, then you may be offered it, but it also, you know, you've got to look at the, the the suitability of that bed, of that home, of that location. 
So it's not as simple as, here's a bed, let's just throw somebody into it. Um, you know, and that's, that's also my, my issue with this, is that people are talking about beds. They're not talking about a new home for somebody. A new home, yes. Yeah. When you describe your mother sitting there in her own room with her own friends and her own activities, it's not just a bed. A bed is in no, hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. And, and okay. I, and, you know, and that, that for me is very important. I'm, I'm, I need to see that something that where she is going to spend the rest of her days is somewhere that she's going to be happy. So it's not a question of, oh, here's a bed, let's just pop you in there. Um, and would you find that maybe you'll have the option of having to move your mum to a new home setting somewhere very far from you? Well, I, I, as things stand, because of this escalation due to HICWA, apparently, um, to October 24th, um, there, there may be a situation where, again, that may be an, the only alternative, but that's, again, coming back to what I've said in terms of my priority is my mother's needs. And I will do what my mother needs. And if I have no option other than to have her in somewhere that is too far away for any of us to visit, I'm not. I'm not looking after her needs. You would do it. So you would do that. You would move. No, I from, won't do it. You, that's not an alternative. But you're, oh, okay. Sorry, I misunderstood. That's not yeah. an alternative because that's not responding to her needs. Because then she won't be able to have family visit her. Even if the setting was ideal, maybe an hour or an hour and a half or two hours return drive, you, you wouldn't do it? Well, you know, I'd, I mean, I would obviously, I would have to look at that. You'd have to balance that, wouldn't you? You'd have to balance whether the setting merits the fact that she would have... No, that's right. You're absolutely right. You know, you're you're it, working through this properly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. is there a new nursing home opening in Carrigaline? There is, and this is another issue because um, everybody, you know, as soon as we all got the news, we, were, we heard about the, this was back in August, when, you know, you had a six-month window to try and find somewhere. And, and at the end of the day, the thing that needs to be realised is that we are relying on somebody else in a care home passing away for a bed to become available. It's not that new beds become available unless that happens. Yeah. So that process is obviously a natural process, an organic process that will happen in its own time. So when we had a six-month window to, to be able to, at, apparently at the time that they announced there were 49 residents and 41 members of staff, so to be able to rehome 49 residents over a period of six months whilst very, um, you know, challenging for us individually, they're seeing that's a reasonable time frame. But to then turn around when there are still, uh, I, I think, about 15 to 20 residents that have not yet had, a, had a, a, a home somewhere else, to then turn around and say, right, now you've got three weeks. That, to me, is inhuman. And, and, I, and I have to think it's illegal. There's got to be some illegality there somewhere. But this home in Carrigaline, we, we were told, um, well, actually we weren't told about it, I think I found out about it through somebody else, um, and they are due to open at the beginning of November. And that home, I know for a fact, we've all spoken with the director of nursing there who's been fantastic, and I know that there are people who are still now in Apri living Baldoli whose intention is to go into those brand new beds, not relying on anybody passing away, beds that are sitting there waiting to be filled. And they're closing a week before that opens. 
That makes no sense. Okay. Hikwa okay. will be the one to open Carrigaline and Hikwa are the ones who are closing. Okay, you've made the point about timing and the misuse of time and um, closing it when they shouldn't be and closing they have it. Or, a, yeah. They have a duty okay. of care. So, so just tell me, just tell me, just finally, I want to talk to Michael Collins, TD, on this uh, for Don West along. But if, if it's a 68-bed facility, um, how many residents were when it was, you know, before they had to start moving people out, how many residents were there? Um, my understanding is that on, when we got the news on August the 2nd, there were 49 residents. 49. And there are 16 remaining who haven't got a new home, is it? Um, I don't know the numbers. I just know when I go in that the, that the place looks decimated. So, so a lot I, have I already been a, a lot already yeah. been moved. So at least fifty percent of that forty nine are gone. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you for that, Siobhan. Do do stay in touch. Independent TD Michael Collins. Morning, Michael. Um, Siobhan, Good morning. thank you. I know you stepped out of the doll. Um, Siobhan's making some interesting points. That firstly, should, could it not have been? taken over and run by the HSE. Secondly, that the timing is nuts, that um, it shouldn't, the the closure shouldn't have been moved up from six months lead-in to just a month. Um, and, and I suppose those two points address them and also your understanding of why it's been closed at all. Well, uh, Neil, this is a very difficult situation for so many of the residents and their families and the staff in, in the nursing home in Belgoli. Um, you know, when the closure was announced first, I got quite a lot of uh, calls. I decided to hold a public meeting, um, in the public meeting about Tidy, uh, CEO of Nursing Home uh, Ireland, and I also brought uh, the CEO of, of a nursing home in the locality to give people an option. But my option was and hope that we could fight to save uh, Belgoli Nursing Home uh, for the residents that were there. And that's what the people wanted, and that's what the public that attended that meeting and attended the subsequent protest wanted us to fight to keep the nursing home there. I have tried in vain, and which is difficult for me and just for the families to hear this, to try and engage with Minister Butler to sit around the table, sit around the table, not ask you, sometimes you, you sit around with, 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 with preconditions. I was asking to sit just genuinely sit around with a number of the families and try and see, could we work our way through? Try and see, could we get the HSE to take over the nursing home? There is an issue there, uh, several issues from what we can gather. They're talking about uh, f- fire issues. They're talking about finances. Uh, you seem to come up with a non-merciful high standard in some hospitals, and then you see overcrowding in hospitals all over the country. They have no standard there. But we have to respect that if they have standards and some standards... That's very true. Uh, even the even this morning, Hickwa have gone on about, about maybe clinical errors in hospitals because of hospital overcrowding. Um, you know, it, like, for instance, one would think that maybe being non-compliant with fire precautions is something that could be fixed. Like Siobhan says that she, she never, ever witnessed in the years that her mother is there any of the issues with regards to, um, you know, money or, or food or staffing levels or treatment of residents. They were very happy with the home. And Hick, you come and they, they inspect nursing homes and they inspect community hospitals. Uh, okay, and they, they they make recommendations and recommendations can be made if if it's financially viable and if not, there seems to be no backup system here with the minister. has no backup system. So if it goes wrong and if a management company wants to pull out of a nursing home anywhere throughout the country tomorrow morning, six or seven, 
the nursing home collapses, that's not the way it should be. There should be some kind of a backup system for these people in the in the nursing home in Belgoolie, where it was ran to perfection prior to APRI Living coming on board. And APRI Living need to get a, 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 a serious rap at the knuckles to them because I have tried to communicate tirelessly with them. Initially, they said they would, and they sit down with us, and I said, okay, we're making progress. And then they stopped communicating for about two weeks. I continuously... Uh, uh, trying to communicate with them and they're telling me uh, in the end we'll, a PR company will talk to you. That's the door PR that has been shut yeah, to the people yeah, to yeah. the people of Belgolian and surrounds. That's, that's no good. PR companies issue issue statements. They actually don't deal with you know conversations yeah. or back and forth. They're trying to work things through. Um, yeah, I, I, there's 37 have closed though in recent times. That's an alarming amount of nursing homes. There is, and unfortunately, listening to Ty Daly when he was in Belgoli talking that there's a lot more on the verge of closure. Why? Because they're, they're finding it difficult to meet with standards that need to be, uh, that their, their nursing homes need to keep up with because the standards are getting higher and higher and higher. And community hospitals can meet with these standards because the HSE are uh, stepping in and funding the, the change. But when it comes to nursing homes, private individuals need have to come up with that type of funding, and some of them can't. So too many people around would clip. But either, either we listen to HICWA for the safety of our residents in our nursing homes, or we're saying that there's too many clipboards going around which like like what are we supposed to do first and foremost I think the minister needs to step in if there's improvements costing huge money needs to be carried out like obviously there's there's an issue there about finance if there's an issue in that nursing about finance that's not going to cost much money to put right there's something wrong there put it right but if there's a fire uh, health and safety issue yes but the state needs to step in fund these improvements so that people can stay in the nursing homes of their choice uh, that they're happy with that they've been there for numbers we have couples married couples inside that uh, nursing home that are now facing being split after being years and they're together oh, that's so tragic. there's a lot of upset yeah. Yeah. I mean there, now there is there. and I know Siobhan is saying that her ma'am Judy is very happy there but the report said that Napoli uh, were non-compliant when it came to food and nutrition residents were saying they didn't enjoy their dinner there was a, like there was a lack of cups one resident was seen drinking tea from a cereal bowl, uh, you know, things like that. Others weren't always consulted or given a choice um, and didn't get time to eat their food and the plates were removed. I mean, that's not good enough, you know? That just isn't sure. on. And, and obviously, you know, patients' care is of huge importance, and maybe that could be sometimes down to lack of staff or whatever. Even though I met a lot of the staff that work inside, they were very kind, very caring, and people, families have told me that the staff were very kind and very caring, and they're in the middle of this mess as well, Neil, because their jobs are gone and they're very, getting very little information. The whole problem we have here is. We don't seem to have a minister that's engaging with its community. Surely she could have sat down at an early stage. This is now at a latter stage. I'm raising it today with the teacher of the country. I'm expecting it after, but it's like it's too much to leave for many people. Okay, it's a and question it's in the doll today then, is it? It's leader's questions, and I'm raising it at leader's questions. So I have three minutes with the teacher, and I want him, because surely he's aware of the situation, because he must be aware of closures in, in, of nursing homes throughout the country, but this one in particular. And I want answers. And the Minister Mary Butler hasn't been able to give me answers other than she's uh, sticking by HICU's uh, compliance and that she's 100% beside that and that she's worried and concerned about p- patient care. But where is patient care when you have no backup plan? Let's and see she what has the, no backup plan. Let's see Our what department the, has no backup plan. Yeah. Government has no backup plan. So, what, so when you ask questions of the Taoiseach today, surely it should be of the minister, Mary Butler. Well, he, well the Taoiseach of the country is what I have leaders' questions today, and it's my first opportunity, believe it or not, since I got back to the Dolls and bring this issue up, and I'm, I'm using that question, the question about Belgooli, because this could be, there could be many more Belgoolis. It's Belgooli in West Cork this time. Where is it going to be the next time? True enough. So, like, surely there's a, there's a template there that the Taoiseach tells us, but it's not being acted on, or else it's not there at all. 
Let's see what he has to say. Much obliged to you for now. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Michael Collins, TD. Text 0868 104 106 after the break. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818 104 106. Oh yeah, things are chaotic. They certainly are. Maybe the budget might attempt to readdress that in some way, shape or form. Uh, but those who go out to work for a living feel that they're never thought about. But meanwhile, if it's not um, nursing homes, it's creches and childcare facilities and they're had to take time off last week and closed for a few days and they all gathered at the doll uh, because they just can't stick the arrangement that they have with regards to funding to take childcare and the fees being paid by the state and that's destined to get worse and worse. Yeah, can I just also just mention, because you know we've spoken an awful lot about health there the last couple of days and issues like that. Uh, I got a heartbreaking and a heart-rendering email uh, just asking me if I would just mention one thing uh, and she says, Mary says, my husband is very sick. He's on a transplant list waiting for a lung. He never drank and he never smoked, but time is against us, Neil. Stephen Donnelly announced the opt-out donor concept way back in, in November 2022, and it is still going through legislation in the Dáil, and all the while, people are dying waiting for an organ. I think the idea was that you would have to opt out of um, be, being a, a donor, um, and if you didn't opt out, it would be assumed that you would be okay with donating, um, you know, whatever it would be needed. It could be lungs, it could be a heart, it could be uh, things like that, uh, an organ after your death. But anyway, Mary says, you can now tick a box to become a donor on your driving licence. But we need to encourage people just to talk to their siblings about donating organs if anything were to happen to them. It's a very short window of time available to get a healthy lung or heart. I speak regularly to people and always ask the question, are you a donor? However, not many are. Uh, nor have really even thought about it. Can't come on air to chat about this because we would be terrified of being taken off the list. It's so difficult to get on it. But any positive exposure would be great. Thank you, says Mary. I hope that your husband does get his transplant, does get his lung and gets on with his life. And I mention this, of course, to encourage people to perhaps, you know, can't force people to, but tick the box to become a donor, at least on your driving licence. Text 0868104106. Can I talk to Kate? I want to apologise also to Kate because I didn't get an opportunity to talk to her uh, on, on Monday uh, and I'm sorry about that. It's just time got away from us. Kate, good morning. Oh, good morning, Neil. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, and I read some beautiful emails and um, almost pieces of prose that you wrote about um, typical day-to-day living uh, particularly with your husband PJ, um, it, yeah. it's 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 very sad, but also very heartwarming and 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 shows wonderful love between you. Um, how is he? How is he? He's oh, do you know you're probably asking the wrong person. I thought he was diagnosed in February 2017, so I don't see. I suppose all I see is what he is today. Like people say, what's changed or. You know, you, you live in the day, don't you? So he's fine. He, um, I think he's happy. He, he'll enjoy the rugby. He'll enjoy having something to eat. Um, life's a challenge, but it's not... I suppose we didn't fall off a cliff, you know? We're six or seven years into it. And when you lose a little bit every day, it's probably easier than, than say, something cataclysmic happening overnight or a car crash or something like that. Like yeah, you, you, it's you, a slow like, process, yeah. And you, was it a diagnosis at 59 of Alzheimer's or vascular dementia? Vascular dementia, yeah, vascular dementia, yeah which fortunately can be diagnosed through an MRI because before diagnosis, 
it's funny, it, it, it manifests itself quite like depression. And you're living with this person and they start to change and you don't know what's going on and you don't know if they stopped loving you or has something happened or... So, in a way, the, the time pre-diagnosis, which can be a year or two when you're trying to kind of navigate this new world, that, that's more challenging. When you get the diagnosis, in a way, it's a relief because... <laughs> Seeing well, people change hurts, obviously, but what hurts more is remembering who they used to be. But when you get the diagnosis, you know, well, it's not him and it's not me, it's this, you know, it's this. And what were you picking up on? Oh, what was I picking up on? He just, it, he became like a cardboard cutout of the man he used to be. He, he looked the same, he spoke the same. His, his driving became erratic. He'd go to the shop and come back and I'd say, oh, that's lovely, how much was that? And he'd say, oh, I don't know, because he'd walked out without paying for it. Um, one weekend, he just one day he just got into the car and drove to his brother's house. His brother lives in Cavern. Never said he was going, never packed anything. And his brother rang and he said, um, he's here. And I went, oh, right. And he said, he doesn't know why he's here. And I said, oh. And he wouldn't talk. And then he came back. And at that stage, we said, right, enough. And we went to the doctor. And the doctor said, no, no, he's just a quiet man. But he wasn't a quiet man, you see. He, but the doctor didn't know that prior to seeing him. So I sent him to Pieta House. I thought he might be depressed. And in fairness to the great people in Pieta House, with his permission, they rang me. And she'd asked him, she said, what did you do for a living? He was retired at this stage. And he said he used to organise exhibitions. And she just knew. She said, there's no way the man sitting in front of me could have done that. So, and from there, then we got the MRI and we got the diagnosis and and then we started to build a new life, a different life. But but previous to that, or perhaps even previous to the diagnosis, I think you were saying that you would get angry with him. Yeah, you'd feel, I suppose that you, you're putting your own feelings in it because, you, you know, you'd go to say kiss him goodnight and he'd stick his hand out to shake your hand. You know, or you'd say something to him and he'd just look at you or he'd say really strange things. You know, you might cook dinner and he'd say, I remember one night, I mean, to be fair, he's not wrong, but he said, oh God, you were never any good at this, were you? And that wasn't him at all. And Christmas came then, one Christmas, and uh, he, he in friends to me, had gone to get gifts, but he obviously got confused when he got to the shop. And there was a, a you know, the spray air freshener? Yes. There was a spray air freshener, Lily scented. And that's what he got me for Christmas. And the only thing I could make sense of it was that he was always very good for buying me flowers and he bought lilies. Yeah, I mean, there's there a lot, a lot of confusion going on in his brain, a lot of stuff yeah. happening and, and yeah. maybe you weren't getting it in the early days. And No, no, I wasn't. I just thought he vanished and I was saying, what is wrong with you, you know? And we'd always talked. I mean, we were, we were both married before we met. We'd been together decades. And, we, you know, we, we, if you're lucky enough to get a second chance at life, you're so grateful for it. And we have been so happy. And we're still so happy um, in, a, in a very different fashion. And... Uh, so, so you don't mess around with it second time around. So when it changed, I went, oh, no, I just couldn't believe it. So the diagnosis was good because the diagnosis then I could start to look after him rather than start to, I suppose, be hurt that, that he'd left because he didn't leave me. He didn't choose to leave me, you know, whereas prior to that, I suppose I wasn't sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you said in your beautiful piece of prose that he sleeps uh, softly be, beside you. He would have been a man that got up at half past five and drove for a living and worked very very hard um, yeah. but now m- much of his memory has, has been banished to the point that mm. a question he may ask of the morning is what day it is, not that it really yeah. matters to him I suppose No it doesn't and, and it's, it's funny, it's the one, you know you meet people and nobody knows what to say about dementia and people try to say things and they'll, they'll say does he know what day it is 
And I'm like, does it matter? You know, it doesn't matter what day it is, you know, or they'll say, oh, oh, he, he looks so smart. And you say, well, of course he does. I've just dressed him. Yeah. You know, and yeah. but, that, but that's that's unfair. People try to, to, we all try to say things. We try to say the right thing rather than say nothing. Um, you know, and, but people don't know what to say. But, the, you know, the, the, on the positive side, and this is just from my experience because it's different for everybody, he's got a lot of physical uh, illnesses as well. He's in the advanced stage of COPD and he's got an aneurysm and he's got a catheter and he's got diabetes. And oh, he, he was, he, Yeah, he's a really proud man and he's a proud man that looked after everybody his whole life. And for me, the, the gift, I suppose, if, if I can find a gift within the dementia, is that... He's shielded from all what I would call the humiliations and the indignities that come with age of an illness. You've seen it. I mean, you're, you're, you've recently lost your father. I'm yeah. sorry to see that. Thank you. Um, we see what goes through people. And if they have to go through that in a full sense, that's a challenge too. So whilst dementia is a challenge, there's, there's no good way, is there, to say goodbye to people we love. There's no easy way, is there? There is an element of shielding. Um, I did a pre-recorded interview with uh, the actor Brian Murray from Fair City and Strumpet City oh, yeah. and um, the Irish RM and Brookside. What an incredible mm-hmm. acting career. I'll play, I'll play it tomorrow, um, himself and his partner Una. Wonderful, wonderful couple. Yeah. I got the impression to a large extent that, uh, that you know, Brian is very positive and he's very mm. outgoing and he's just real glass half full kind of a guy. And I guess I got the impression from the conversation that that's because he's not really all that clued into, yeah, you know, today or what happened yesterday, yeah. although he can remember things 40 years ago. But but that's for tomorrow. That's for tomorrow's program. Do you yeah. I mean, what, what would his tip? What would PJ's typical day be like now? Uh, OK, well, he's not up yet. Some days he can get up. I was up. I, I'm an early riser. And uh, the other morning I was up and about six o'clock I could hear him. And I went upstairs and he wanted to get up. But then he went back to bed today. He's tired. He's had two or three tired days. I'm not sure why. So today um, he's still asleep and he'll come down. It'll take a while. We uh, we go up and we get dressed together and uh, we kind of gently amble down the stairs and he'll have a cup of coffee and pancakes. He has that every morning. It's exactly the same thing. He likes that. And then he'll probably go to sleep again after about two hours. I'm lucky. I was listening to people yesterday and, you know, they, they, they find it hard to leave the house because their partner might might go wandering, which is obviously a big concern. I've never met anyone in my life who dislikes walking as much as PJ does. <laughs> so that's very, very fit. And then he'll doze off. And like that, we have the radio on, we love Red FM on, and we go around and listen to different things. And he used to read. I, no- I noticed lately, I asked him the other day about something on the telly and he handed me the TV guys. He, he can't read that anymore. So he's lost the reading, which is a shame because he was a great reader. Aww. And so he'll listen and he'll drift off and we've got dogs and they'll wander in and out and he'll talk to them and call them the wrong names Aww. and they give him great love. And uh, then six o'clock, he'll go in and sit down and we'll put on the news and that's it. And I'll put his dinner in a tray and function. He doesn't eat at the table anymore. I think it's, it's just another thing to do to get up and go to the table and there's just no point. So he sits and he'll eat that and he'll say, thank you very much. That was very nice. You know, he's so polite and... Um, and and that's it. But uh, and the rugby. Now he will look forward to the rugby. Funnily enough, yeah, he'll know the rugby is on. He he might know who they're playing, and he might get the day mixed up. But when the rugby comes on, he loves sport. Always loves sport. Well, what he will watch today? Will he remember tomorrow? Um, do you know he might? Uh, if somebody we're lucky, we've got a couple of friends who keep coming at him. You know, they're really good. They choose to spend time with him and sit and watch matches with him, which is so kind. And. 
yeah, he he can he doesn't say much. They talk and he kind of nod, but I think he's absorbing it. And um, yeah, so would he remember it? He'll remember it possibly not in the same way that you and I will, but I mm. think he remember the pleasure of it. If that makes sense. Um, and, and it's it's awful for him, you know. It really is to see him slowly being, you know, stripped away, if if you like. But it's got to be very sad for you, though. No, I just keep busy. You know, you've two choices, haven't you? I can either sit and watch him disintegrate in the corner of the room, um, or I can keep busy and make the most of what what we we have. I mean, when he got this diagnosis, I sat down with his family, and I said, right, look, we're lucky. I'm not sitting here telling you that he's dying, that he's got two weeks to live, that he's had a heart attack, that he's dead. I'm telling you that we've been reminded of what something we should all remember, that eventually our time will, will finish. So we've been given this wonderful reminder that yes, you know, he's going to diminish, things are going to get worse. So anything we ever wanted to do, any time you ever wanted to spend with him, anything you really wanted to do, now's your time. So we were given that wonderful reminder. So I kind of, I try and do that because, you know, I, I don't know, you know, none of us know. You, nope. you don't know if you're going to be here next week nope. any more than I do. Nope. But we've got today. And so if today is that he enjoys his pancakes and the news comes on and he laughs at Mrs. Brown's boys for the 85th millionth time and or Faulty Towers, uh, like lo- loves the old repeats on the telly, obviously, because they're so familiar and so safe, then look, isn't it a good day? You know, it's all we've got. Beautifully said. It really is inspiring to listen to you. But what, just finally, of a cure? We are hearing more medical advancements. Do you hold out for that? No. Vascular dementia will never have a cure because it, it's a lifestyle form of dementia, if you like. It's it's the death of the, the, the brain. And there are things we can all do to guard against it. So I suppose it, we, things like vascular dementia, it, he's a man of his time. Look, he's a man in his 70s, so he smoked and probably his diet wasn't as good as it would be now. And things that we we now know aren't good for us, but were, were commonplace then. So with high blood pressure, with all these, with, with cholesterol, things like that, we really need to watch out for them. So yes, there might be a cure for Alzheimer's, for the dementias that are cure, caused by lifestyle, what we can do, those of us who are lucky not to have it, I suppose is to look at what we can do to prevent going down there. And that's exercise and it's diet and it's keeping relevant and it's keeping your brain ticking over and keeping moving. And I'm not saying he got this because of anything he did or didn't do, but there are certain things that you and I can do um, with the hindsight of, of the knowledge that we now have that can hopefully push these things out. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm out of time, but it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Very inspirational, very open, very moving. Thank you so much. I wish you and Kate the best of luck in the world. And uh, he's you. in he's in very good hands with his well, beautiful so wife. I. I'm very lucky to have him, Neil. Very lucky. Count my blessings every day. Thanks, Kate. God bless. Bye bye. Bye bye. Out of time, guys. Uh, we can pick it up in the morning. You can text 086 0868104106 and. A story to share, email neil at redfm.ie. Have a good day and I'll see you tomorrow. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.